Greetings. Hello and welcome. The archival recording you are about to hear was sourced from live streaming audio in an effort to expand content reach. I have decided to repurpose the show as an audio podcast. I have done my best to remaster the audio quality for your ears, but I have chosen to leave its content and length unedited. So you may hear reference to visual cues not described in said audio. If you'd like to see the original live streaming video podcast this recording comes from, please head over to youtube.com slash C slash Frumis Films LLC or just search Frumis, F-R-U-M-E-S-S. And don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. Audio from episode to episode will also vary in quality. Sorry about that. Thank you for tuning in and listening. Jeff from us. Welcome to the Streaming Evil Live show. I wish I could sing the theme song to Death Rider in the House of Vampires. Sadly, I don't know it by heart at all. I hope it comes out on soundtrack. I remember there being some like, like sort of stuff, you know, classic Danzig woe situation in the credits, um, which I enjoyed. By the way, uh, just for anybody who watches this broadcast, make sure that you've seen the film or you don't care what's in the film because we are going to spoil the ever-loving shit out of this movie. It is going to get spoiled for you. So just beware. Beware. Um, hey, what's going on, Chris? How you doing, Matt? We already, have, we, already have, we already have comment reviews. I do have a very special guest, so we will not be diving knee-deep into comments, per se, so quickly. Um, I also, yeah, so let's just, let's just launch into the show. We're going to do... We're gonna we're gonna do a classic style. We we have to start with our our very important intro. Already, I can see the connection speed is slowing down. That sucks. All right, let's. Jeff is gonna talk about the misfits right now. He's a nerd about this stuff, obsessed anyhow. Jeff never shuts his face. Always needs to talk. That's a classic right there. What's going on, Room Morgue? We got Room Morgue in the house. We have Walter White in from New Zealand. Walter, how are you? Um, Mark, what's there to spoil? Oh, boy. Oh, boy. You guys already got me sweating. So I went to go see it in the theater. This is the first time I've seen a movie in the theater since March of 2020. March 12, 2020. I went 12, 2020. I went to go see The Hunt at my Alamo draft house uh, impulsively and didn't realize that it would be the last time for a very long time 
oh yeah, Amy just watched the movie. That's great. We have Russell Casualty, AKA Russell Murdergram in the house. What's going on, sir? And Walter White is doing great. That makes me a happy man. Good, 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 good. Oh boy, we have a show for you guys tonight. So like I said, I hadn't seen it. I haven't seen the movie in the theaters for a long time. Going to a film festival this weekend, actually. Genre Blast Film Festival. I'm very excited. We got two films in the film festival. Uh, Transformations of Dr. Jenkins and Beyond the Green Hole were nominated. It's going to be What's Up. But like I said, if you haven't seen Death Ride in the House of Vampires, just be aware. We are going to spoil the crap out of this. Like, maybe there's, maybe you might not think there's much to spoil, but we're going we're gonna to talk. I have questions for my mystery guest. I have a mystery guest. How did I meet this mystery guest? This is bizarre. So I'm on a website called Letterboxd. And Letterboxd is for us film, film nerds who, who just love, 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 love uh, to log and catalog and review movies that we watch. And it's, it's, like a, it's just a wonderful website. And you can meet like-minded individuals. You can meet people that, uh, you know, whatever. You, you, you meet, can meet people through it, through reviews and stuff. And so when I was logging the fact that I had seen Death Rider in the House of Vampires, I noticed uh, there was another comment from a gentleman named Anthony Arrigo, who said that he had worked on the film. And I instantaneously put a comment underneath and said, hey, man, I want to have you on my show. I, I, I'm going to be reviewing the movie anyway, talking about the movie, whatever. It'd be great to have someone who was there because I got questions. Now, uh, in addition, so Anthony works as a second AD. I'm going to let him explain all that. It's a uh, you know, there's, you have the assist, an AD is an assistant director. You have the first assistant director, then there's the second assistant director. You think there might be a third assistant director. There's not. There's the second, second assistant director. Don't ask me how that works. I always heard that it's because they would call it, they would say, call it the, the third assistant director. And that's why there's no third assistant director. I don't actually know that. Um, but, you know, I like to bring experts onto, onto the show to talk about the stuff that I maybe like can't answer or not qualified to. So I'm really happy to have Anthony. Anthony is also does a lot of writing for Dread Central. Great website. Go check it out. Um, and he is just, he's acted in some stuff and he is a horror film DVD Blu-ray hound in the same way that I am, except he, he has a much larger collection than I do. Uh, so without further ado, uh, I'm going to bring on Mr. Anthony Arrigo Give him a warm round of applause. Hello, sir. Hello. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Welcome to Anthony's film collection. Uh, fun fact, there actually is a third AD. There is a third AD. Only in Canada, though. Okay, break that down. Why is it called a second second, and why is it called a third in Canada? I couldn't really answer that question, honestly. Uh, I don't know why it's only a third in Canada. I don't know why they call it a second second either, because the second second might as well be the third based on right. just the kind of work that they do. So um, I, I don't understand some of the terminology, honestly. <laughs> but um, uh, the second second is very useful. So, uh, you know, we should probably just call them a third AD. What? Okay. Well, first off, can you enlighten for the audience here? What does, what are some of the responsibilities for the second AD? Sure. So primarily what I'm doing is uh, making call sheets, getting information out to the crew, right. 
uh, getting all the actors through the works, which is hair, makeup, wardrobe, uh, working with the first AD and the director to uh, come up with a, a schedule that makes sense. Um, you know, so so helping to facilitate the scheduling of the days. It's it's usually primarily done by the first, but the second AD does need to step in and help out with the with that on occasion. Um, just you know. Uh, it, I have a lot of dialogue with all the different departments, just, you know, if we're, if we're moving locations, if we're, it's, it's my job to disseminate information on set and to make sure that everybody is there the next day, uh, actors and crew. Um, for, all, for all intents, of, I'm sorry to interrupt you. No. For all intents and purposes, someone brilliantly, uh, Mark in the comments brilliantly said, what about the earth AD? So you, <laughs> On this film, you were not the second AD. You were the Earth AD. I'll, I'll gladly take that title. And honestly, I'm a little disappointed in myself. I didn't make that joke on the call sheet one day. So, Oh, man. Yeah. Missed opportunity. That is a missed opportunity. I'm sorry. I interrupted you. Go ahead. Finish no, it's fine. The only thing I was going to say is um, it, it, the duties are a little bit different depending on if you're working uh, non-union or union. So if you're on something bigger, the second AD's duties are a little more stripped away because – They've got other people that can handle it because it's a much bigger job. Uh, on shows like this that I did, uh, I tend to wear a lot more hats. Got you, got you. That makes yeah. that makes sense. And yeah, I mean, depending on the 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 budget of the film, the 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 scale of the production, you know, you're going to have more people, more departments versus you know the smaller the film, the more hats one wears. In the case of making a micro budget film. It's usually one guy doing everything, right? You know? Right. Um, so there you go. And then to, just to differentiate, I don't know if you, maybe you answered this in your previous answer and I just didn't hear you. So then what about the second, second AD compared so to the second AD? Second, second, usually at least on this show, when we had a second, second running, they would take the talent. Like once I would get everybody through the works and ready, then I would hand them off to the second second. Second second runs them down to set. Uh, he'll hang out with the first city on set and kind of be his right hand there because I can't be there because I've got other shit to do. Um, so yeah, that's the handoff. And then on some shows they'll they'll do the PR reports, but um, I just tend to do everything myself. Got you, got you. Okay, that makes that makes sense. I appreciate appreciate yeah. the full breakdown. Um, I, I, I do some film stuff, but you know, if you, again, if you were to hand me that pop quiz and say, Hey, what is the difference between a second, second and a second 80 and blah, 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 blah. I mean, uh, it's, it's, it's there. Most, most people really don't know. And honestly, there's, it, it's not like uh, you can apply for these jobs or there's a manual right. or anything, you know, it's just kind of like you figure this stuff out on the fly uh, and, and learn uh, how to do your job while you're doing it. It's, it is in a weird kind of way. Like, yes, there are like official avenues. You can go through like the DGA or whatever guild. Yeah, you can do the trainee program and that's, a, that's fantastic if you want to be doing un big union shows. But for uh, everybody else who's in the non-union world, uh, you, you really got to figure a lot of this stuff out yourself or, or be lucky enough to work with somebody that wants to train you. It's like the, la it's like the last like trade where, or one of the few remaining trades where it's like an we're like, you legitimately are like apprenticing, you know, like it's kind of like you get brought on to something and you learn directly from the person, not through any necessarily an official program, unless you're doing bigger, bigger scaled shows, as you said. So it is kind of like, it's a very interesting sort of like, um, you know, you get your next job by good word of mouth, you know, that kind of thing. 
Yeah, the only reason I even got into ADing is because some girl I worked with who was a, a first AD said, I, I liked your vibe on set, and I'd like to have you as my second, even though I know you've never done this before. So I'll do two movies with you, and by that time, you'll be able to get hired on other shows in that position. And she was right, but, I mean, that's that's exactly what it takes. Isn't that interesting, too, how, like, it wasn't, you know, your aptitude on, like, a test or you know, necessarily a result that you delivered. It was, I like your energy and, you know, film sets where you're with someone 14 hours a day, you know, doing a good job could be predicated on how you know how to handle people and how you interact with people and that that yeah. quality could get your foot in the door. So that's awesome. Truly. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. That's, that's how most people get most of these jobs. Um, especially in non-union is it's just it's good people you like to work with because they're long days and, and they're tough and they're they're crazy okay. hours and um you know you got to work with good people you like because uh, otherwise it just it sucks and it becomes a big shit show and and we we've all worked on way too many of those things so um yeah you, you try to stick with a production family if you can find one right and and, you know, that is interesting, too, how there, it's two different worlds or not. I don't know, two different worlds. But, you know, there are when you're when you're in a union or when you're working on a union set, the rules, there's it's everything is different. It's yeah. there's not, you know, there there are, you know, there are draconian penalties. If you don't follow through, you know, there are there are just all sorts of situations while, you know, if you're non-union, then even though there are rules, there aren't really any rules, you know, it's, it's a lot more lax. Like in the union world, I couldn't touch grip equipment if I wanted to, cause I, I'm just, you're not allowed to, but non-union it's like all hands on deck. Let's get the shit moved. So um, yeah, it's, it's a much looser environment. And, and to be perfectly honest uh, in some ways I prefer doing non-union stuff um, just cause I don't like stuff to, I, I didn't get into this industry because I like rigid structure. Right. Um, so, uh, yeah, but it, it's, it really just depends on the crew. Honestly, uh, if you have a good crew and they're feeding you well, I it really doesn't matter to me what we're doing. What's interesting too, you made mention of something that, you know, seems might seem ridiculous to some right off. Like, what do you mean? I can't touch the, the grips equipment or the gaffers equipment or the sound card or whatever, but those, you know, those rules are in place for a very good reason in the sense of like, you know, there is some order to that in the way that like, you know, you need to have certain experience or certain understanding of said thing in order to be handling it. And if you're handling, if you're, if you're not, someone who's normally handling it then you know you it makes you liable for something that perhaps you shouldn't be liable for because you may not have the experience or or vice versa so that's yeah and sometimes they they just look at it uh it very literal terms as that is somebody else's job like um yeah that too yeah. you know I, I i was on a union show earlier this year and i i used a golf cart to just move some equipment that was for our department and somebody stopped me and said, you can do that right now, but just so you know, that's a Teamster job and they need to move any equipment at all. So it's it's even something like that where you would think it's something innocuous, like just moving a couple traffic cones is not a big deal, but that's a specific Very political. Very political. Yeah. Truly. Uh, 100%. So let's, before we dive into our, our big topic, um, in, in order to really sort of appreciate 
um, Anthony's role in, in the in the making of this film. Uh, you are not only did you work on as the second AD on Death Rider in the House of Vampires, but you are a Misfit Sam Hain Danzig fan. Huge, yes. <laughs> Huge. <laughs> so, all right. Well, before before you tell about how you got how you got the slot, um, or maybe it was as simple as just hey, want to want to want to work on this thing. It's like, oh my god, yeah, I'm a huge fan. But tell me about how you got in. How did you get into what? What attracted you to um, your fandom for Glenn Danzig and his music? Um, I just always liked dark, creepy, different, twisted things. And um, <clears throat> oddly enough, when I was in, I think, maybe fifth grade, uh, there was a girl I was friends with who listened to Danzig. And she played one of, uh, I think this was... This was like right when Danzig three came out, so uh, I was in, I was instantly hooked. I went down to warehouse. I picked up all the cassettes. Uh, I was just fully into it, and uh, I went, once I found out that he had done some other music with different acts, then I started getting into Misfits. I started getting into Sam Hain. I started buying up all the tapes and CDs once I could find them, and uh, I was just I was fully into it. Um, my first concert I ever went to was Danzig Halloween night, 94 at Irvine Meadows with wow. uh, still the best show that I've ever been to. So wow. um, is that the famous one, the famous Irvine Meadows show or the very Irvine Meadows show was 92. Um, that was the big one that, that got all the releases, but uh, 94, I think was, was just as infamous. If you've seen the, uh, any footage from it, um, same kind of show, you know, they had the pumpkin, it was on Halloween night, so they had the pumpkins out there, and, and uh, this was right after Danzig 4 came out, so uh, it was a hell of a set. I'll tell you, that footage of the 92, I've not seen from 94, but that footage of the 92 is just like the band that... Yeah, it's, it's, those are, these are prime years that we're talking about here, and uh, I have a really bad bootleg of the 94 show that's somewhat watchable, but I mostly just keep it for fond memories well you know i mean that's yeah ultimately that's what it is it's a fond memory and truthfully you you know it doesn't necessarily mean that there's a better copy of said show out there to have so to have a document of it although we did get lucky we i did not realize this for years and years and years i always thought that the first show was like this really crappy audio recording but I, there's a better one on youtube it's just really crisp and really? loud. And you can, yeah, it's a great way to take in the first show. And I'll send you a link to it uh, after yeah. the show is done. Great. Please do. I know. It, it, you know, from 94, you're lucky to have any kind of decent footage from, from most of these shows, especially something that wasn't captured by the band. So, yeah. um, you know, I'm just happy to watch anything. But uh, after that show, I, I didn't see him live again until – Geez, sometimes in the 2000s, because it's pretty much right after that, you know, the the, the classic lineup uh, included, um, and I just didn't really go see him again for about 15 years. Yeah, it was uh, it, it was uh, it was a dark time for dancing. Uh, some some might say, some might say, but yeah. um, so all right, so how did you get how'd you get this gig? It's almost as easy as you made it sound. Um, uh, I had a friend who was a, a producer 
on this, and he called me up and said uh, that he had gotten a recommendation for me from uh, one of the other guys who was on the production team because he they just needed a second AD. They were they this was kind of an odd job in that they didn't just hire a bunch of people that they knew. They actually went out seeking some of these positions, like using Media Match or you know some other websites where you can find crew. Um, so I just got, my name just got thrown in the hat as a second AD because quite honestly, um, I mean, I'm sure there are plenty of us around, but this guy just happened to remember my name probably because my initials are AA and I'm almost always at the top of everybody's phone book. So usually I get a phone call just because of that alone. Uh, I mean, I've had people tell me I've gotten jobs just because I'm at the top of their phone list. So just like um, a horror movie distribution where you want to have an A at the beginning of your title to be at the uh exactly yeah something arbitrary like that that uh, worked out in my favor in this case so um so they asked me to come on and then there was almost a slight hiccup for a minute there because they go oh, hey we noticed you write for dread central and this is this is a set because at first i just got brought on and they say hey it's a horror western do you want to work on it and i said yeah sure i mean it's uh, I'm, I'm a freelance person so i'll take any kind of jobs when it come my way and then they said okay so there, there might be a conflict because this is Glenn Danzig's new horror movie and you write for Dread Central. So I said, guys, I, I'm not going to write anything about the movie. I'm not going to put some spoilers out. And they said, will you, will you sign an NDA that, that says that you'll uh, not say anything? I said, yeah, of course. I mean, it's uh, I, my job on Dread Central is not a, being a, a journalist anyway. I, I write home video reviews so that I can selfishly get all these titles. That's, that's really the reason that I write for them. So um so I, I had no problem signing that and taking the job. And then after that, it was just a matter of weeks before we got going. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Now, the, like right. October. You that so you hear that it is a horror Western. You're like, cool, horror Westerns. I'm a horror guy. I mean, you know, like, you know, we all like near dark or whatever. But what, so what is going through your mind? Like what happens when you hear, oh, this is Glenn Danzig's next film. And had you already known that had it leaked or had he announced that he was doing death rider in the house of vampires and you put two and two together or this was even before he started publicly discussing it no i i didn't really know a thing honestly um and i had i had I, i'm friends with one of danzig's good uh close friends and i had done a movie with him earlier that year and he didn't even mention that glenn had that coming up so i really had no idea once I found out it was Glenn's movie, I was pretty stoked. Like I, I don't get starstruck, and I, I, I'm celebrity isn't really an important thing to me. But uh, people that I've admired since I was a kid, like I tend to have a little bit more nostalgic love for. So I was pretty stoked to work with Glenn for sure. Um, one of my friends kind of warned me off at the beginning. He goes, "Are you sure you want to work with Glenn though? Because you've kind of got this image in your head of the Glenn that you like." And what if you don't get along with them or what if things don't go well? And I just said, you know, it's, I, I feel like I'll probably get along with him. So um, I just wanted to go for it. I mean, it's, I, I, there was no way I wasn't going to have that opportunity either way. Could you imagine if you had, you know, and some people feel this way, where like there are, so I've, I've definitely like crossed paths with people who are just like, yeah, like, you know what, mostly, it mostly comes, comes from like reading rock biographies. Like I'm not going to read that biography. I don't want to know. I don't want to know anything about the person other than the persona that I see or hear in, on my albums and see on video and, and whatnot. Right. Um, 
but it's like at the same time how could you ever how could you be a fan the way that you are and like be like no i'm not gonna go down this rabbit hole you know yeah it it was a it was uh it would have been tough to say no for sure um uh, and also i just really didn't have any good reason to say no it was a good shoot um it was a pretty long shoot it had a good rate um it, it checked all the boxes that I needed it to already. Uh, so I, I felt like it being Danzig's movie was just kind of like a bonus at that point. Amazing. That's amazing. Uh, before we get into, I, you know, uh, trying to decide, should we talk about what, you know, your POV as to like what the production was like, or we should talk about, well, well I have questions. Let me, let's just, let's just launch into it. I have questions. Okay. Do it. Okay. First of all, Again, guys, spoilers. If you haven't seen the movie, then don't then then don't watch this because we're about to spoil everything. Now, there's some films that you need to watch. By the way, I just want to say right off the bat, I really, truly, thoroughly enjoyed Death Rider in the House of Vampires. I did very, very much. And the reason why I think I did more than more than I might normally have, I didn't watch it on Shutter. I didn't watch it at home. I saw it in a big dark movie theater with one other friend, we were the only people in the theater, it was great. And we just had the place ourselves, we saw it close to midnight, and it was just, it was such like a wonderful, immersive experience, in the same way that, you know, I know a lot, I don't know if, you're, if you've seen the, um, oh God, I don't know her, I can't pronounce her name. The second film she did was The Bad Batch. She did A Girl Walks Alone at Night, A Girl Who Walks Alone at Night, I can't pronounce her name. Fantastic filmmaker. Um, have you seen Bad Batch? No. Oh, you should. Okay, well, I don't want to spoil that for you, but Bad Batch is another example of a movie. Or I would even say Mandy. You've seen Mandy? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So Mandy's like a film you have to watch in the theater. It's an immersive experience. You know what I mean? Like you go, like it's not a film you want to watch on your little flat screen TV or whatever. You have to be in a dark theater and, and projected into this world. And I feel like in order to really appreciate this movie, you have to be thrust. You're getting like a peek into Danzig's, Danzig's world. You have to be fully thrusted into it by being in a dark theater. So I would advise everybody watching the stream to go and see this movie in theater immediately if you have the opportunity to. That is the way you want to take it in, number one. Like, hands down. Would you agree with that, Anthony? Would you say it's a movie that you could watch in a theater? Or? Yes. Um, <laughs> I think it should be seen in a theater. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm laughing a little bit because I'm thinking of the fact that, like, I, I feel like a lot of people don't have a huge attention span these days, and Glenn likes a lot of very long shots, and I feel like these are times when somebody could just maybe space out on their phone for a minute because they think the shot is going on for too long. And uh, I think you're right. You do need to be in the theater to fully immerse yourself in that world. And, and really that's the way that you should be watching movies anyway, because it's too easy to be distracted anywhere else. Yes. Yes. I it precisely, precisely my point And definitely one of the aesthetics that we are going to uh, thoroughly discuss. Um, you just, you need to be, it's like, and here's the thing, an extension of seeing this movie in a dark movie theater is sometimes when, a, when, when, a, when a shot, when you hold on a shot for a long period of time, I don't know about you, Anthony, but for me, sometimes I, it's almost like an out-of-body experience where you're, you really just start to drift and you're just so kind of lost in 
what you're seeing, you kind of like space out a little bit. And that I definitely had that vibe watching Death Rider in the House of Vampires because you really get, you really just sort of get lost in the shots and how they, they, Glenn likes to dwell on an image. He likes to really dwell on an image. Glenn Danzig, for those of you who don't know, Glenn Danzig, he wrote this movie, he directed this movie, he was the co cinematographer, he was the co editor, and he scored the film and he has a supporting role in the film. Am I leaving anything out? Is there anything else that Mr. Danzig, Uncle Glenn, did on this film? Uh, I mean, he really oversaw everything, honestly. Um, those were all of his credited roles, but, you know, uh, it, everything filtered through him 100%. And, you know, going back to his, the, the DIY ethos, um, you know, that it, he employed with the Misfits, you know, when he was doing everything himself, uh, you know, if Glenn could have done everything in this movie by himself, he probably would have. But it's not, it's impossible to do all of these, you, you know, Glenn can't act and be the gaffer at the same time. So, you know, that was probably part of the, the frustration with the filmmaking process is that he wants things to move it at his pace and he wants to be doing it all. And, um, you know, yeah, in a way he kind of did, but I respected that on set because, I get on so many of these movies where it's, it's just, I'm working on some piece of crap and half the people don't want to be there, including the directors. And there's really no vision on this thing at all. And Glenn knows exactly what he wants. And every minute of that film up on that screen is because Glenn wanted it there. Um, so I respected the fact that he had a very clear vision of what he wanted to see. He is an auteur in the same way that Dan O'Bannon is an auteur on the production of Return of the Living Dead, Dan O'Bannon was famous, infamous in some instances, of being a very hands-on, immersive director who really believed in the auteur theory and style that, and for those of you, I'm using this word auteur, and I don't mean to sound like a pretentious film, film school snob, it's just, that's what the term is, and an auteur is, is, is a filmmaker who, it's like, um, what's the best way to say this? Like, it's like the film, even though the film is like a, even though the film is like a, a team effort and made by a lot of people, it's also a, it, it's like a, a singular authorship that a filmmaker takes over a film. Usually, it's accompanied by the title, uh, you know, a film by dot 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 or a a so and so film, a Spike Lee joint, that kind of thing. Um, that's kind of like the a tour. Uh, approach where you you literally have a little piece you have a hand in everything i think you said it so well about the, the diy punk rock ethos but my question to you is since glenn was involved with so much and so fully Im immense immersed immersed in this process first question right off the bat i'm watching this beautiful wide open vista shot with the with with mr death rider on his horse and He's got his um, endowed, his endowed um, companion on, yes. the, on the back of a horse and you're traveling and it, and it seems like you're shooting at magic hour or I guess the opposite of magic hour is what happens at sunset. I don't know what you would call dawn, although I guess this would be sunset. So it's supposed to be some sort of magic hour vista. And yet I noticed there were some spotlights 
in the front of the horses that are riding through. And I about halfway through the film, I was thinking about this because I was really like dwelling on it. I'm going, wait a minute, did was this done with green screen or did you guys actually go out and shoot wide? Because I'm like, why are there lights here? If you have like dawn coming up through, I don't know. The, I think the idea would be to do some sort of silhouette, and yet there that you're you're losing that effect and aesthetic because you have spotlights in front of the riders. I don't know if you can answer uh, answer that question at all. Yes. Um, so uh, that was all stitched together from a few different days. Uh, we were out in like the Palmdale Lancaster area, which is uh, desert, basically. It's like 30 or more miles outside of LA. We were probably 50 or 60 miles outside of LA uh, in the desert. And uh, this was just, this was like, we went out to the desert maybe three or four times to shoot this stuff. And it was a little bit challenging because Glenn had a very specific idea of what he wanted these scenes to look like like these the rocks had to look a certain way the vista had to look a certain way everything had to look very particular so we would send locations people out to um to find these locations out there take some photos get them approved by glenn and then sometimes we'd get out there and uh glenn didn't actually like the location um so it would um so we'd have to then find a new spot so we ended up doing a little bit more work out in the desert um just to find the right spots for uh for these scenes so um that might be why the lighting looks different in some parts of it uh i know i can tell you he was very specific about the lighting um obviously being uh credited as the cinematographer uh at least on Letterboxd. And it was that in the film too? I can't remember, but in the film. Um, yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, <clears throat> um, it, it, those were challenging days, really. Yeah. It was freezing fucking cold out there. It was like, it was like 35 degrees. Uh, everybody was miserable. And, uh, Tara, uh, our, our well endowed lady on the horse was out there completely naked while um, girl. We, we were shooting this. So, uh, yeah, it was, those were rough mornings for everybody, but especially her. Now, but the actual dawn coming over the mountains, that is... That That's actual really dawn. Yeah, we didn't, we didn't green screen that stuff. That's all actual dawn. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. There was I, only, I was gonna, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say the only actual green screen that we really... Uh, use well the, uh, the the vampire deaths were shot in front of a green screen. Other than that, the only real major green screen scene was uh, Mina Bell's death. Gotcha. Which probably seemed clear that they were not walking through the desert in that scene. Um, it actually looked really good the way they yeah. uh, composited it, but that was our only other like major green screen scene. Really, I have to say the while there were some aspects that did not necessarily lend to an authenticity in other aspects, uh, I was very impressed with some of the, the, the special effects work with, you know, like the melting vampires from the silver when they pours the silver down the guy's throat. Yeah. It came out really nice. You could see the, the money, what the money went 
to the special effects as it should, you know, to make really good special yeah. effects and such. It really did. And, and honestly, uh, I, I really do give the film a lot of credit for that because the vampire deaths do feel a bit novel in that regard. Like they don't quite look like every vampire death that you see in movies. Right. So I think that they did a really good job putting that stuff together because we did not uh, do any of that stuff on set. Um, wow. The set effects were pretty minimal. It was mostly appliance pieces. Um, a lot of stuff was just, you know, added there in, in post. Hmm. Um, now, I noticed that, you know, this is one thing I spoke about at great length when I reviewed Veronica. And I think it rings true. You know, I've heard a lot of people wondering, asking, has the, you know, people are comparing Veronica to Death Rider. It, you know, was one better than the other? I would say that Glenn Danzig's filmmaking has definitely improved a bit from his first film, Veronica, which feels in a weird kind of way. Someone, a friend said this, I thought this was very sort of accurate. Veronica, in some cases, feels like music videos, that he's directing music videos, but without any music, you know, in that kind of way. They're very sort of surreal sort of pieces. And this feels like a, a more of a story, more of a formed story. Yeah, and, and that probably makes sense because I, I don't think, well, Glenn had only directed a couple of his music videos before he did Veronica. So I think, because I think he directed a couple of those, right? Yeah. He directed quite a few music videos and, you know, some of those you might consider to be, you know, shadow directing credits or co-directing co credits or whatever, but he definitely, he definitely directed, hold on one second, I see something. I have some major flooding going on. Hold on, I just felt my feet, my feet just started to get wet. Wow. Is that for real right now? My, you're not going to believe this. My entire basement is flooding. Well, I'm in the, you know, we're right outside some serious storm, storm weather right now. And I mean, look at this. Look at this. This is, you know, I had some towels down here. Jeez. Um, yeah, we got a, I got a, I got a problem. Hold on one second. Fill some dead air for me, uh, Anthony. One second. Sure. <clears throat> Jeez. Let's see. Um, <laughs> Well, hopefully everybody enjoyed the movie. Uh, it's, I think it's definitely, geez, I feel bad because you're dealing with such an issue here. I do hope everybody goes to see it in theaters though. <clears throat> if only because it's cool to go see something by Glenn in theaters. Um, I, um, I, I am so sorry to interrupt. I have a major I have major flooding all over my floor. There's a lot of electrical equipment here. Um, I, I have no choice but to but to end the broadcast in this moment right now as I deal with this insane flooding. Please um, do. Let me ask you a question. Uh, would there be any chance uh, that we could possibly have you back for a part two? Uh, oh, yeah. For convenience? Would you – let me ask you a question. Could we, could we schedule this? Like I'm going to end the broadcast and we're going to – talk about how we can schedule this real quick. Is it possible yeah. to do that with you? Totally. I'm, I'm free. Okay. 
I'm going to do that right now, guys. I am I, like, this is crazy. Remember the last time when we had a tornado and I had to end the stream well, about a year ago? Well, we're, we're dealing with some serious shit right now. Um, so I'm going to end the stream. I want to thank Anthony. I'm going to schedule the part two with him immediately so we can continue this. I hate that I have to stop right now, but I literally had no choice as my feet are literally soaked with water. So I'm going to end the stream. Yeah. Hold on, Anthony. Wait one second. not know <laughs> my god my goodness hello everybody hello hello amy hello brandon hi ravner um welcome to tonight's show um before we launch in let's just let's get the let's get the 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 intro out of the way i'm trying to be more consistent with our intro song this is how we begin the show so we're gonna do it Jeff is gonna talk about the Misfits right now. He's a nerd about this stuff, obsessed anyhow. Jeff never shuts his face, always needs to talk. Might be shown somewhere if he went out for a walk. Do you think Jeff cares? Okay, we're back in the basement. We're bone dry. I mean, not bone dry. Yeah, we're pretty bone dry, actually. So here's what happened yesterday. For those of you who may or may not have bared, bared witness to this, this is a, this is the, what's up, Von Doom? Shout out to Von Doom for being a YouTube member. Thank you for the support, my friend. I throw the devil horns right back to you, good sir. Um, Here's what happened yesterday. So this is like at the beginning of the TV show previously on da, 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 Streaming Evil Live. Uh, I had a guest on, Anthony Arrigo. He was the second AD assistant, assistant, second assistant director, second AD on the film Death Rider in the House of Vampires. And we're just having a grand old time. Like, really, I'm, like, stoked about how this episode is going. I'm loving We're getting some good information. We're learning something about the, 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 the movie industry. What's up, Roomwork? I hope, you, I hope you, were, you and your family were safe and dry yesterday, truly. Um, Freaking having a great time learning stuff about Death Rider. I had a lot of questions about Death Rider, and I was hoping to get some of them answered. I wanted to, you know, uh, analyze the film and you know, talk about Danzig's progression. All of a sudden, you know, we had we had gotten these warnings. I'd gotten them on my phone. We've had them in the past. Last time, remember, we were going to do the New Zealand episode, I think it was. We were talking, to, uh, I think it was Nigel from New Zealand about when Danzig, the one time Danzig went to New Zealand in 1994 and his crazy sort of backstage story. And um, uh, that that turned into a tornado. There was a tornado warning. The whole family was in the basement, you know, and so... <laughs> We had to stop the show. We had to come back, do another show. Well, yesterday, as I'm as I'm talking to Anthony, here's what you guys didn't see if you were watching the stream. 
So off to this side, off to that side right there, I start to see my wife like sort of fussing around in the corner. And she's, you know, sometimes she'll come in back and forth when I'm broadcasting, doing laundry and whatnot. And, you know, she knows the drill, you know, if I'm broadcasting, I'm broadcasting. I try to, you know, I keep a tunnel vision as much as possible. You know how much ADD I have and how many tangents I can go off. So it's like, you know, I got to like make sure I'm zeroed in or else I'll be you know, wandering around my room. Right. And so she's doing stuff and I think she's dealing with laundry because I see towels and uh, I'm just trying to intently listen to what Anthony is saying. And she starts like, like Jeff, Jeff. You know, I'm just like, oh, come on. Like, what is, what is so important right now? We're in the middle of the show. Like, I just want to do this thing, you know. Yes, leaving leaving is in Death Rider. I was shocked to see that. I was not aware that he was in the movie film. I'm going, what? I'm going, what is what is going on, right? And um, freaking, freaking, uh, she keeps like kind of like, t I keep, I finally turn my head around in the middle of uh, Anthony's, uh, you know, explanation of something. And right behind me, right over here. I don't know, I'm going to sort of tilt this down. All of this, all of this area is covered in water. I feel it. I feel the water on the backs, on the back of my heels. And, you know, I have like a power strip right here. I've got plugs. I've got, you know, all sorts of machinery. And I'm going, oh, my God, I got to stop what I'm doing right now. Because if I don't, I might get electrocuted. You know, there are houses like being destroyed. Um, I have all my records, my seven inches, my comic books, my DVDs, my Blu-rays. You know, you saw Anthony's impressive collection of Blu-rays. I have a less impressive collection, but a collection nonetheless that I cherish. And, you know, rec several records that are definitely worth 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 some, uh, you know, worth some loot. And, you know, all my stuff, my possessions, my hard drives, my, my tape archive, everything is down here in this basement. Everything is kind of lifted up. Miraculously, even though we got, we must have gotten a quarter inch of water down here. The whole floor was covered with water, but we managed in a team of two, my wife and I, from the moment I ended this stream, from the moment I ended this stream, what's going on? I... Myself and my wife toiled till 3 a.m. We got the shop vac. I was soaking up the water. It was like we were fighting. <laughs> we were fighting the, the rising waters. She had, um, in Israel, it's called a, a magav. It's a squeegee. She was basically mopping the floor, pushing the water out through our house. If you saw my little blog, you saw what was going on. Pushing the water out through, through, out through our garage. And we just kept this up. There was a, we, we we discovered that there's a hole, there's a crack in the concrete blocks in our in our laundry room right next door to here, and it, it was like a fountain. It was like a it was like a faucet of water just pouring in. We were it was it, it was terrifying. It is terrifying when it's happening. And I'll say this much: I wanted to just everything is safe. A Amy is asking if if everything is safe. Everything is safe everything i that's that's the that's the point, point the, the the overall point of my story is that i feel and even in the even in the middle of it i felt immensely grateful because as i was in panic mode i start thinking in my head i'm going i'm going okay where i'm taking um i'm taking inventory of every valuable i have in this basement and i'm so sorry to hear about that alan um 
and going, okay, everything's kind of safe. Like everything is risen up off the ground. We're moving stuff around. We're shuffling things around and it's going to be okay. The water is supposed to stop at 1130 and then it went to 1230 and then it was till 230. So we just kept doing the thing because the groundwater, there was so much rain. There was so much groundwater. It was just, it had soaked up from the accumulation. We got so much rainfall that we don't normally get here in New York. And um, I just kept trying, we kept trying to keep a positive mental attitude. I'd be lying if I didn't say there were a couple of yelling matches between the wife and I trying to get everything, you know, <laughs> the back and forth, the back and forth. Um, but in between that, it was like, got to stay calm, got to um, uh, folk, keep your eyes on the prize. This is going to stop eventually. Eventually started, took, took the shop back and straight up put it against the wall, sucking the water out of the wall instead of off the floor. All crazy madness. And, you know, like I said, I feel really grateful because people lost their lives yesterday. A, a dude was eaten by an alligator. No joke. Dude was straight up eaten by an alligator in Louisiana um, because the water was so high and big, big old gators came. Um, so, so it's, and the fact that we're doing the show 24 hours later, that we are able to get the basement studio office back in, you know, uh, back in the swing of things, like, it, I feel grateful. And I'm really happy that Anthony is back. He's waiting in the wings right now as he listens to me tell this tale. He's waiting in the wings, and we are now going to pick up where we left off last time with our story. Not our story. It wasn't a story. Just talking, talking about the making of this film and some of the aesthetic things and chatting with um, chatting with Anthony. Hi, Rebecca. I hope you are safe and dry in Louisiana uh, Amy, I'm sorry to hear that about your grandparents' house, and I'm glad I could give an explanation, Raphael. Without further ado, let's bring Anthony back in. Hey, Anthony. Hi. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Hello. Um, so, what were we talking about? <laughs> Jeez. I, I remember what we were talking about. Uh, I can't I remember. remember, honestly. <laughs> so, Without re-explaining everything we spoke about yesterday, we we initially go back and watch the first half of this episode. It's now a two-parter, not by choice, but that's just the way it is. We were talking. I was asking Anthony because, again, as a filmmaker myself, um, as someone who's – I've made a feature-length film myself. I know what goes into it, but at a micro-budget level, not at the level that Anthony works at a much bigger level than I. Um, but I did – I was sort of looking at, you know – aesthetics and had was curious just had questions because i was like oh i wonder why that is and i wonder why this choice is made he actually broke some stuff down that i didn't understand or didn't realize so he told us he was telling us about the vista shot the big wide open shot at the beginning which i thought might have been an, a special effect and we were talking about how awesome the vampire um special effects looked it uh looked for the um you know the silver getting poured down a vampire's throat which is fairly original you don't really see that i haven't seen that sort of death in a vampire movie yet you know right so that was interesting well done yeah yeah I, I was pretty i was pretty stoked about that um so one thing that i've noticed let's let's take it from this because we, we we briefly spoke about uh veronica and yeah. I, this is what i've noticed with with gd's foray into filmmaking 
Um, it's something that I've spoken about. It's a theme that we've continuously spoke about, not just on this show, but something let me just talk about on this channel because a lot of what we talk about on this channel is, you know, uh, uh, creative art making, making art, you know, um, the right. the artist's process, right? And right. I once heard, and, and maybe you'll agree with me, Anthony, maybe you won't. I'd love to hear your two cents on and whether this applies. When you're when you're making something, especially when it's a film, if you're a director, or we were talking about the auteur stuff too. When you're mm -hmm. um, when you're making a film, you are trying to bridge two things. You are trying to bridge your taste with your ability. You have a taste. You you have a. You might have a deep understanding and, and intimate knowledge of the films you like and the aesthetics that you like. And, you know, a lot of filmmaking is really, you know, taking cool stuff that's come before and trying to, you know, do put your own little spin on it. And then there comes down to the execution of that spin and what ends up coming out on the other end. And I feel like for Glenn Danzig, like many filmmakers, he is simply, these are have been two exercises in him trying to bridge his taste, which of, he has quite a palette, you know, his, his, his intimate understanding of spaghetti westerns and, you know, uh, 70s Euro slasher stuff and Bava and all this and that, and right. trying to bring his filmmaking, you know, elevate his filmmaking to meet that standard. Yeah, yeah. I, I <clears throat> his influences I, I thought were pretty obvious in the film. Uh, you know, a lot of Hammer horror uh, played a big part in that. The Euro horror, for sure. The spaghetti western stuff, and it's uh, again, it was everything he wanted up there. So um, we were just there to make sure that he could see that vision through as best we could. So uh, I, I think. At that budgetary level, this, you know, um, he got what he wanted. For sure. For sure. Um, the, I noticed that a lot of these, there's a lot of zoom in shots. There's not only, there are these zoom in shots and he did it in Veronica too. They seem to be sort of like, again, going back to that, like it's, it's that seventies grindhouse style. Um, is that Glenn behind the camera, run, working the camera and racking focus himself on on the subject? Yeah, um, we had actually shot with three cameras, so uh, which is a luxury on a film at that budget level. Really, you usually have two at most. Right. Um, Glenn operated one camera, and uh, one of my friends is actually also the co-editor of the film. Um, so I know I think they. Um, maybe mainly use Glenn's angles, but, you know, again, Glenn knew what he wanted to shoot. So the other two cameras were there for additional coverage and, you know, you need something else to cut to, but, uh, most of it was, you know, what Glenn wanted to see. So yeah, those zooms and all of that, that's, that's all him. That's really interesting. So you had three cam. I mean, that's usually you hear about that stuff for like sitcom TV work where you're, you know, sort of getting coverage from three different uh uh angles was that by that was glenn danzig's idea he wanted to have three cameras covering everything 
Yeah, I, I think that was I wasn't part of those original meetings, but uh, you know, it's it as everything was put together how Glenn wanted it. I would imagine that Glenn wanted the three cameras. Uh, I will tell you, it makes the days go very quickly. Um, wow. If if anybody knows anything about production work, your your average day is twelve hours, and it goes up from there. So uh, to have three cameras pretty much guaranteed that you'd have a 12-hour day. Now, I'm, I'm assuming if this was digital, that means that you – did you have three dedicated DIs for each camera or you got one team working around the clock to back stuff up? Uh, we just had one. We just had one DIT. Wow. Yeah. Um, My volume is low. Really? Volume is yeah. low? Do I sound hmm. low right now? Why is that? I was just I was just bragging to Anthony off screen about how my my setup sounds so much better and or I think my setup sounds so much better and you're telling me otherwise. Anthony, do you hear me? Okay. I can hear you just fine. Hmm. What Go about ahead. now? What about now? What about now? I must be peeking. Hello, hello, hello. All right. It is what it is. I'll just get real close to the microphone. Hopefully that's better. It's clear, just low. What? I don't know what else to do, you guys. This is about as high as it gets. Um, So how long was the total shoot, Anthony? I think it was 21 or 23 days, something like that. Okay, that's yeah. pretty... For a low budget something something that yeah it's pretty these things, are, these things are usually like 15 day shoots so right. we had a little bit more time than usual on this one right um now you wow so you got to really sort of you were around a lot of very interesting people there was i didn't realize i was shocked to see leaving in the film i did not realize that he was in the movie that must have been awesome to was he yeah he, was, he came in for a day or something uh, we had Lee for a few days. Yeah, he's super cool, really chill guy. Uh, would sing to us when he was hanging out in the back, waiting to go on. Um, just like the nicest guy. Uh, old, um, you know, old, old punk rock dude. So um, he started late. He was in his mid thirties, I think, when they started doing Fear, something like that. I never listened to Fear, honestly. So um, I only knew Lee because he had sung on a, a Dave Mustaine side project called MD45 that huh. that I knew him from. Which <laughs> I'm sure to Lee Ving fan sounds horrible, but um, you know uh, I wasn't too familiar with his work before. But really nice guy. Uh, you know, I recommend the first album. That the first album is the, the Fear. The record is really really solid. If you are into other punk rock besides the misfits we didn't talk about that you said you were a Danzig yeah, fan actually, i'm actually not the only punk rock that i like is the misfits <laughs> okay that so that makes that makes a lot of sense what you you're more of like you're more in the metal the the metal realm yeah, or I was always an 80s metal guy like gotcha yeah gotcha so, gotcha okay bag, but I, I like the misfits right and you know it's funny just to sidestep for a brief moment that it's funny how the misfits always get the misfits get the metal pass, right? Like, totally. Yeah. 
why why do you think that is? I, I love asking this question. If if you had to, I, I don't mean to put you on the spot. If you if you had to guess, what is it about the why, why did the Misfits get a medal pass? Uh, you know, I don't know if it's because there's also some kind of link between metal and horror movies, and there's so much uh, horror iconography and 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 the lyrics in Misfits, uh, and then obviously the aggression of the music and. You know, it's it's the image, it's it's the artwork that Glenn used, it's it's that whole vibe that they put off. Um, it feels, you know, it's, it's punk, but it, it, it feels like it would apply just as well to metal. And if you're also into horror, then it just it just seems like a natural fit for me. Um, that no, I think that's I think that's incredibly valid. I've heard so many different things, and every time someone answers that question. They always come from. They always come at it from a new angle, and it's incredibly valid, you know. Um, so that that makes sense. I think that makes sense. Right. Um, to get back to 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 Death Rider. So here's the plot. Again, we said we were going to spoil this movie, so here's the plot, or at least some of it. And that's what I wanted to clarify with Anthony, because maybe I was. I t- I told you how. You, you know, you're immersed. We talked about being immersed in the dark theater and how it, it like, it almost, it's like almost like an out-of-body experience in terms of, like, you kind of, like, space out on what you're seeing. You're not, like, you kind of get lost in the in the images, especially when, like, a shot holds on something for a long time. Right. Um, and, you know, I was trying to grasp what the story was. I was trying to figure some of that stuff out. Um, and I, I'm not sure if I had a, a full grasp, which is why I wanted to um, confirm with you maybe that you might know more because, you know, you worked on the thing and saw the thing as well. That, you know, okay, so essentially what you have here, again, spoilers, if you have not seen it, do not get get off the stream now. Uh, I hope I sound loud enough. Basically, you got this guy, Death Rider. He's on a horse. It's a world full of vampires. They never explain why everybody's a vampire. I like that. I like that, right? Yeah, I, I, I like ambiguity in my horror, so uh, I think it, I thought it was a good idea. I mean, why do we... We don't need an explanation for why everybody is a vampire. They just are. Yeah, it and, doesn't matter. Yeah, it totally doesn't matter. I actually thought that... I thought that was a really great, unique hook. I think Glenn is capable of incredibly unique, creative, fresh ideas. And... It's just that maybe the way that he goes about executing them could be better suited if if he delegated more to others. But we, as we said, we understand that he wants to be in a tour. Um, yes. So, so you have a you, you have these people. There, you have the you have this guy, Death Rider. He's riding on a horse. Your classic, you know, man with no name. He just has. He's just the Death Rider. Literally calls himself like Rider. <laughs> Wears a leather kerchief. As um, as me, as uh, as the girl Mina uh, calls it, he wears a leather kerchief, and um, he's got a well-endowed girl, and he's riding towards this place called Sanctuary. Another cool idea. Again, I think Glenn is a great idea man in this kind of way. Just like comes up with these, he comes up with a great setup. He bumps into Danny Trejo, who's a vampire because everybody's a vampire. Except here's the one thing. And again, I don't mind films. I don't know about you, uh, Anthony. Like, well, I guess you just said you 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 don't necessarily need an explanation. But like, like I, I kind of like 
it, I don't know if what you would call this. It's not dream logic. It's just surreal logic, like where it it goes unexplained, but you're not upset that it wasn't explained. Yeah, I agree. With so, that. so there's no there's no ex- explanation for the this well endowed girl on a. <laughs> there's no there's no. Um... <laughs> There's no explanation for this well-endowed girl on the back of the horse who's not a vampire. So there are non-vampires in this vampire world, but it's a vampire-ruled world. Right. I guess. Yeah. I, you know, I'm assuming she was some kind of, uh, I don't know how many humans are left, but, you know, um, uh, <laughs> sorry, I saw somebody's comment about Sundown, which is a great movie, by the way. Um uh, I just assume, yeah, she, she's some kind of virginal sacrifice for the vampires, and you know, that's that's something that obviously appeals to them enough to let him into sanctuary. Right, so that, that's the price. Yes, yeah, that's the price. That's the price, and I mean, you, you, that's like that's in the synopsis. You could read that on IMDb, and um, so, but she's not a vampire, and then they're and then they bump into Danny Trejo, who is a vampire, and he's all like, you know. He's all talking about how he's going to kill Death Rider, I guess. And Death Rider runs really, really fast. Like, really fast. You never see any vampire run fast after this one time that he runs really, really fast. Um, yes. Anthony, were there more times that maybe this got cut? Was there, was there a lot of extra footage that was sort of like, or do you remember scenes being shot that didn't end up in the final film? Uh, I can... I can tell you that the script was about 56 pages. So um, getting that thing up for 90 minutes, that's, that's why a lot of these shots are longer. You know, it was a very short script. So we didn't really shoot anything that didn't wind up on screen. So it's interesting that Anthony says this. Again, we were talking about some film-related terms and terminology before. Well, there's a rule of thumb in filmmaking, and it goes like this. One page of screenplay is supposed to equal one minute of screen time. So if you have a screenplay that's 56 pages, it will approximately... Now, this isn't set in stone, and frankly, it's it's somewhat of a myth, uh, as you can see with Death Rider and the House of Vampires. Um, but you essentially are supposed to get 56... It's a way of sort of knowing what your, your, your total runtime could be if you're just still ha- if if it's still just on the page if you haven't gone into production yet and and so um that's not always the case though sometimes you might have a script that's 76 pages and then you wind up with 104 minutes like that that could happen sometimes you think of stuff while you're on set some of the best moments in films are thought thought up right there in production split second great example blade runner everybody talks about blade runner um, Rutger Hauer gets his lines, thinks it's too long and too crazy, and basically re- re-edits his monologue to just be these things about the glistening beams or whatever, and the the the, the tankers on fire off of uh, Orion, and it's considered to be one of the greatest monologues. That was thought up on the spot, you know, or like very quickly on set. So sometimes things miraculously, serendipitously happen on set. But in this case, I mean, 56 pages for a 90-page script is, I mean, talk, that's crazy. That is really, really, really light. 
Um, that's a light. I was a little surprised by how uh, short the script seemed, but you know, again, in, in Glenn's head, he knows how long he's going to hold these shots and um, the length of what these scenes are, are going to wind up being. So, fifty-six pages seems short to me, based on what I usually work on, but he knew that they would equal out to probably about 90 minutes. So, you know, that's, that's where the film is at. He made so. a meal. He made a meal out of those 56 pages and pulled, pulled it out like Laffy Taffy. And so, yeah. So after, after he, ta- ta- you know, he goes toe to toe with, with Danny Trejo, he runs really, really fast, punches him out, ties him down to burn. Danny Trejo's really sad about it. He's calling out. He's calling them this, these names. Calling out. Um, they make it to the. They ride a lot more. There's a, more riding. The film is Death Rider in the House of Vampires. Actual, uh, after all. So, the first, whatever, how many, however many minutes. I, I didn't know. I wasn't looking at my watch. There's riding, and then the the rest of the movie is a House of Vampires. So it it is. It's on brand. And um, sorry. Go ahead. Said it delivers on the title. Yeah, it deliver exactly. It delivers on the title. You, we get to the house of vampires. There's, they he knocks on the door. He's got his, his his um entry fee, which is this, this yo this this young endowed lady that was on the horse, who's scantily clad, if that at all, and they let her in. They're all vampires, and they they just take a they take her away. We don't see what happens to her. He goes before this uh, count played by Julian Stans, you know, the warlock himself. Um, and, and he's great. He's really, he's really uh, great in it. Like, he's, he's trying to, he's doing the best that he can with the material and giving it his all, and, and you could see it. And the, the lighting reminds me, actually, very much kind of like the lighting I have here a little bit. Like, it's... Uh, very intense neon lights in this main throne room. Yeah. And... Uh, these are, um, Glenn has these little U stellar lights that he likes to use. Like uh-huh. these old lights, but they've got this, this really nice blue light. So, um, we use those in, in a lot of scenes. You can see those lights and he would set those lights himself, obviously. Um, so that's, that's where you get that really nice blue hue. That's that, those are his personal lights. Did he talk about? Um, did he talk about taking photography or being uh, going to photography school when he was on set? No. Hmm. no. Um. Yeah. So I mean, again, as we said, Glenn has a hand in every aspect of the production. He knows exactly what he wants. But this is, I think, um, Anthony actually said it really perfectly last time. This this is a. This is a mentality that has gone all the way back to 1977, right? Like this is a mentality of of DIY. Um, I'm going to do this my way, um, whether it propels me or hinders me, does not matter. I'm just going to, you know, live or die by my own sword. And I guess it's it's been no different with these films. And so you have Julian Sands acting it up there are these guys they're monk guys they're doing their monk thing they're like monk vampires you kind of forget everybody's a vampire after a while right because they're all yeah. vampires so it doesn't even it's like um god what's that movie it's like blade 2 
right? Because, like, the vampires don't even feel like vampires because then you have the other vampires that are vampire vampires. Right. Yeah. Right? True. Which is a great idea, too. Um, I love Blade 2. It's a good sequel. Oh, phenomenal sequel, truly. And you know what else, too? This is really... Well, we'll talk about that later. Predators. Predator films. Just blown... I just rewatched Predator 2. So blown away. I want to make a whole video about it, but so blown away by Predator 2. Um, Underrated. So underrated. So so now um, Death Rider, he gets shown to his room... Uh, there is a, oh man, I don't even know her name. She's just a, 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 a lady, a debutante. A, maybe she's a lady of the night. Wh- who is she supposed to be? Uh, are we talking about Kim director? Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, a lady of the night, I suppose. Yeah. Okay. She's yeah. a lady of the night. She's the girlfriend of, uh, a main character in the film. I guess it's not really a, a spoiler, but yeah. Oh, what? Who? Uh, the the count? No, no, no. Like in the film, you know, she's she's with. You're talking about the yeah, Kim director is with you know, uh, Bad Battery. Oh, I didn't. I did not. That I don't know why I did not put two and two together with that, or maybe I missed something. Oh, they, were, they, were, they were together at the end of the movie. Right, right, yes, I remember when he's standing up when he sees Death Rider riding off, and they're like, we're going to get you someday or whatever. Right. Um, okay, that makes sense. Uh, yeah, that's what I got from it, at least. Um, yeah, no, no, no. That I li- Listen, like I said, that's why, again, I had questions. I was maybe maybe I wasn't paying attention and didn't or didn't realize that in the moment, but, I mean, now that you say it, like, it, yeah, like, it definitely – it definitely makes sense. Um, so, so then she has an assistant named Mina, and Mina's kind of she's a little ditzy, and she, they're both attracted to Death Rider, and they, uh, he, she says uh, the um, Kim director's character says, uh, hands off, he's mine, and you know obviously that's not going to be the case later on, and. There's some seduction. He goes to his room. There's, he decides to lie down. And then here is our first plot reveal. I don't know. What would you call this? A plot twist? A plot reversal? Not a plot reversal. A plot reveal. I would say this would be the beginning of Act 2, right? Sure. Yeah. Right? Because we learn that we learn the reason, we learn that there's more to Death Rider than just being a rider of death. He's got this, what is that? Like a... Um, You know, a thing. <laughs> he has a a roll with like he unrolls his leather like like fruit roll up. It's, like, <laughs> you know, it's like that that leather um, kit unrolls, and there are tools inside, silver, stakes, stuff like that. He's gonna do something in this house of vampires, right? So he goes out and mingles downstairs, and that's when we get to meet Eli Roth. And now Eli Roth, you know, it's funny. Julian Sands, I'm not, I don't know if Julian Sands was very aware of Glenn Danzig. I don't think Devin Sawa was really new. I read an interview with Devin Sawa where he was kind of like, seemed like he didn't know what he was in for in working uh, 
with Glenn Danzig's on Glenn Danzig's film with Glenn Danzig's style of working, right? He did. Um, I'm sorry. He did not. No. Yeah, not yeah. aware. Someone who seemed incredibly aware, it oozed it on screen was Eli Roth. Oh, totally. Yeah, we 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 had some conversations about his role in the film, and yeah, he was he was very much there to have a, a really good time with that role, and he did. He was he was pretty funny on set. He shows it every ounce of it on screen in, in his role. He's just he's just oozing like charisma and having a great time. He knows exactly why he's there in terms of just being like, you know, I'm on a Glenn Danzig film. This is awesome. It's fucking Danzig, you know. Yeah. I'm gonna have he a got great it. time. He got, he got it. it. He got it. Um and then uh, they pour some silver. They pour the silver down down a guy's throat. For some reason, Eli Roth's character needs Devin Sawa's character to know that th- that they torture vampires here and pour so- pour silver down the throat. So they do that, and then Glenn Danzig comes into the movie as Bad Bathory. Yeah, and this is the best part of the whole movie. <laughs> yes, and. I'm not saying that because I'm a Glenn Danzig fan or that any of us that we're all that we all love Uncle Glenn the way that we love Uncle Glenn. You just this is the only way I could describe it. You 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 walk, you see Glenn walk in and suddenly you suddenly realize I'm in Glenn Danzig's world right now. This is Glenn Danzig's world. He's so stoked to be in his world. He's so stoked to show you his world. And he's so much so that he has this little smile in the corner of his face the whole fucking time that he's doing his stuff. As he, you know, I could tell he was maybe struggling just a little bit with the, the it must have not been easy with the fangs. Talk, uh, doing acting with the fangs is not hard to do your, your dialogue, right? Yeah. You know, a little bit. Yeah, I'm sure tough. I haven't had to talk with any fangs in yet, but um, yeah, they could be a little challenging for the actors, but he definitely had he had a good time making this movie, I think mostly um, as it was, but you could tell his favorite days on set were the Bad Battery days. Right. Now, this is when I saw that there were two cinematographers, so when he's on screen... Than the other guys shooting, right? I mean, that makes sense. Yeah, he would. I mean, Glenn would still set up his shots in costume, and and he'd get everything lined up where he wanted it. But we also had uh, Peja was our was our other um, cinematographer, um, right? Camera operator. I mean, it's uh, I, I don't know what the official credit wound up being, but um, he was also there uh, assisting when Glenn was working. So there was one other gentleman who was credited as a cinematographer along with Glenn. And it was the same thing with the editing. So I, yeah, that must've been paid for, them for the uh, cinematography. Um, and now were these days, you mentioned that the days were very economical in terms of time because you had three cameras rolling. Were the days, did the days take a little bit longer when Glenn was in front of the camera? Because it's gotta be, I mean, to act in something that you're directing in with a crew has got to make everything go slower. Not really, actually, uh, because we had the three cameras and we had the luxury of a longer shooting schedule than would normally be afforded on something, you know, 
if this had been scheduled normally, somebody probably would have tried to do it in 12 days. So the fact that we had, you know, over you know, 20, 21 days to do this thing, uh, we could afford the luxury of, of making sure that these scenes had time to breathe. So we really weren't in danger of, uh, you know, like going into crazy overtime ever. Really. Wow. Well, in any case, to get back to what we were talking about in terms of just like Glenn having a really good time in front of the camera, he just seems to be like he seems to be like a a, a kid in a candy store, just like so happy to be doing this thing, to have this role. And I got to tell you, man, I say this, I say this from the bottom of my balls. True. Dude is actually a capable actor and frankly i think you should do more stuff in front of the camera like he is i could imagine a world where glenn danzig is has like this character actor career kind of like henry rollins he he is totally capable of that same sort of you know coming in for you know a scene or two doing doing something really interesting and going out so seeing him anchor this film but not like be center stage because you imagine if he's doing everything else well obviously it should star him too but no he's like right. no i'm just gonna be off to the side i really like that yeah I really he, enjoyed that. he picked i think the coolest role for himself too uh you know obviously um but yeah i mean he's been acting longer than he's been directing i think um maybe not but at least the same length of time as far as you know he did music videos before but He's been acting since back when I think what was Prophecy Two, his first role, maybe. Right. So, um, you know, he's 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 comfortable enough in front of the camera. I mean, I didn't see that episode of Portlandia that he was on, but I know he guessed it on that. So, oh, he's great. He, he can act. He he was really great, actually, and that's another funny you bring that up in. Funny that you bring that up in this, uh, uh, in in response or in relation to what we're talking about perfect example of like I i'm gonna come in for three minutes at the end of this tv show and just like light light everything up and then i'm out and it's like right. he just did this thing really funny it's great i think you could see it on youtube you should totally check it out it's it, it's right. really it, it's great man it really is awesome and i just i hope he does more stuff like that in the future i hope it opens now that he's you know, spending time on film sets. I hope it opens him up to other people's shit, and maybe he'll come and you know do stuff. I did notice Fred um, from Portlandia was was there, man. He was one of the vampires. Uh, yeah, yeah, he was actually in the yeah. hallway, in the hallway, sucking on some blood. Yeah, uh, from one of the Saska sisters. Yeah. Oh, those. That was them. I didn't. I didn't realize that yeah, was that, them. You know, it, no, no, a lot of the cameos weren't exactly highlighted to the degree that you would necessarily recognize who they were. But, you know, the, the Saska sisters were in there. Uh, Fred was in the hallway. He had a really good time. Um, uh, we had, you know, uh, Sean Waltman, X-Pac, you know, for uh, those 90s wrestling fans. We'll remember him. Um, I'm so sorry. I know nothing. I know, like... That's fine. That's a, that was my lifeblood when I was younger. But leaving uh, gotcha, gotcha. um, uh, Danny Trejo, obviously. Yeah. So yeah, there were a lot of people who just popped in. 
Um, I had heard at one point Slash might have even been coming in to do something, but he didn't really have time, or maybe he might have just been visiting. But, uh, yeah, Glenn had no issue getting uh, a lot of his, his buddies to come down and guest for a day as a vampire. So, you, uh, um, I know Glenn is really big into wrestling. Did you, did that ever come? Did you ever have any conversations about uh, wrestling with him? Were you able to, like, talk no, to him on that? We had. No other conversations about things but nothing about wrestling really um because i i haven't been into it for years so i i that is not the kind of conversation i'd probably think to pick up necessarily but um yeah i i never really thought about it he's been on s- some podcasts and talked passionately about wrestling which i you know again like i said i i'm not so not like that and sports i just I'm not, yeah, I'm not a sports guy at yeah. all. Just when I was younger, uh, I was all about WWF. Well, I mean, if you're going to not be into sports but be into a sport, I guess wrestling is like the perfect sport for the non-sport people, right? It's a male soap opera anyway, so you know, right. it's entertaining, and there's there's a level of athleticism that you can't deny, even if it's uh, you know fake. So, uh, yeah, there was a video of. Fred Armiston and uh, Carrie from um, from Portlandia and also Slater Kinney. They're like in some car. I think this is before they met Glenn. They're drive by Glenn Danzig's old house, the one that everybody visits. Yeah, go ahead. Do your thing. Uh, I'll just I'll, I'll fill the dead air. I you know Anthony did it for me yesterday, so I shall do it. Look at all Anthony's movies. Look at that. Look at that library. He's like a modern day. Edgar Allan Poe with his or who's the who's the narrator in the Raven? Who is the guy who's telling the story about the Raven among his books of lore? These are Anthony's books of lore that we're seeing in the background. In any case, that there's this video. I can't I've, I haven't been able to find this for years, but it's Fred and Carrie and they're driving in a car. They drive by Glenn Danzig's old house and like they're like just shouting out the titles of misfit songs. Like, they're not even singing the Misfit songs. They're just excitedly shouting out the titles of said songs. I thought it was really, 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 really funny. Um, but, yeah. So, you know, as we were talking about, Glenn just seems like he just seems really natural in front of the camera. I really enjoyed watching him act. And I love that he wasn't center stage. I think it was great that he was sort of just off to the side and, you know, come in and bolster the movie when it, it it was supposed to happen, you know? Um, I do... Well, I'll wait for Anthony to come back to ask this because I don't know... Oh, there he is. There he is. So, we see... Every, you cool? Yeah, yeah. Na- nature calls. So. Gotcha, gotcha. We, uh, we were admiring all your... I mean, we didn't... I didn't really see how vast your library was until you it's, stood up and really... Oh, my God. It's just that's the room all over the place. That's the that's the room, though. That, like, that's the room. The room. Yeah, that's so. the room. <laughs> yeah. Like, hey, does Anthony have a room? Oh, yeah, he's got a room. That's that's the room. This is the it's the man cave. Yeah. Yeah. That's hey, I totally totally relate. Totally relate. Yeah, you get it. Um, So then what happened? So Glenn. I mean, bad bathery. He drinks. He drinks. So then they like they let all these. I guess they're prostitutes. They they just all come out. Mm-hmm. 
you know, it's a little from dusk till dawn-ish, kind of like a reverse from dusk till dawn where, you know, unsuspecting people come into a bar full of vampires and get, you know, get their blood dranked and whatnot. Yeah. You know, pretty standard. Um, the, then, all right, this is what was, this was interesting. So I noticed, now, if you're on a movie set, you see generally anybody who's BG, background, you're doing background acting, you're, you're not supposed to talk. You need to control the sound. So if two people are having a dialogue scene in a crowded room, like at a party or a bar or something, everybody in the background needs to look like they are speaking as well. Um, but they're not actually saying anything. They say something like sometimes they list fruits, watermelon, cherry, pickle, or watermelon, banana, strawberry, because it sounds like you're saying something without saying anything at all. Post-production, but I'm, it left me scratching my head and I was where you have people just in the background they're not talking but there's no it's quiet there's some there's a little bit of foley and that's it there's nothing else there's nothing else going on and i wasn't sure if that was like there there was something behind that or maybe i just something i wasn't picking up on anthony <clears throat> Uh, I think the only thing I could probably say is that I, I would imagine Glenn also oversaw all the sound design. Um, I mean, I don't believe we captured any of that background stuff live on set. So uh, everybody was just, you know, miming and mouthing and all that, uh, like usual. So um, I don't know where they got the background sounds from. That was, yeah, very, all part of post. It was very surreal. It was like a surrealist kind of element to it like it added like this nightmare scenario quality to it you know yeah it was um it was different it was it was very it was very different it was, it was different. so um but yeah unexpected but um yeah it, you know I, again it, i'm sure he did all the sound design stuff as well and then the mixing and, and the sound editing and all of that you know, I don't there. I do like some of the mixes on some Danzig stuff, but I really wish I know Glenn Danzig's done the mixing on all of his records. We've spoken about this before. I really I, I wish he would bring some other ears into the mix. Maybe he does. And I just don't realize it. But I feel like I, I really want I really wish that he would. He, he's also he produces his own stuff. I really want to see Glenn work with. A producer like a different producer and just see what direction they would take him you know with his song ideas and see where it would go you know yeah uh i'll i'll agree because i i always like to hear different sounds but just based on what i've heard i don't think that would be likely right um right. you know i think especially now with just the way that the music industry has gone and and um how everything has changed so much uh he's very protective of his his sound and how he wants things to be um and you know again it's back to that diy approach so um i think he just i think he's always just going to handle his own 
production and mastering and all of that. I will say the flip side, the flip side of that is I was really because uh, I was not. I was not really into skeletons. I was not really into Black Lady and Crown, but I absolutely was balled over by the Danzig sings Elvis. Uh, I like that record a lot. I think that's great. Skeletons mm-hmm. had some good tracks. Uh, it was it was hit or miss for me. Uh, same with Black Lady and Crown. There, I thought there were some really strong songs on that, but uh, you know, I'm one of those guys that just keeps going back to the first four albums all the time, pretty much. So. Uh, yeah, his new stuff is what it is. I just, I man, if he never does, if if that is the, if he doesn't do, he's talked about how he may not record more music in the future. If Danzig sings Elvis is the period uh, at the end of the the musical sentence for Glenn Danzig, I think it's a good one, and I think that Pocket Full of Rainbows might be one of the best things he's recorded in twenty five years. It's, I just think yeah. it's stupendous. Big Good. fan. Be a fitting note to go out on if it was. Yeah. Um, yeah but sure. you know, who knows if uh, in, inspiration strikes him, maybe he'll do another record. I'm, I'm curious to hear what the. I'm assuming some kind of soundtrack for Death Rider has got to be coming out. So, I don't know what else he recorded other than what we heard in the film. Let's talk about that for a minute. I am going to. I, I, I do have to say I was a little underwhelmed in the soundtrack department on certain levels. The because here's the thing, the opening song is really really great. I loved yes. it. I really really loved it a lot. But I felt like every other music cue was not nearly at the caliber of that opening song. And the reason why I think that is, and again, this is just what I came up with in my head, was because he's doing so much stuff. He spread so thin trying to do all this stuff that like, you know. He's. I feel like he let some of the score s- suffer. It was, it was neglected, a little bit. It could have been. I wish that. The ultimate truth is, while I was so, I thought it was very interesting to see Glenn handle the camera and editing duties and you know all this stuff. At the same time, I almost wish he would that he would have let brought other people in and let them do their things so that he could focus on the music and bring the music up a little bit more because some of it's very minimalist. It's a very minimalist score in certain places. And I just wish it had the same energy as that opening track, which is just great. Yeah. Yeah. I I totally agree with that. Um, I I thought the opening track was really good and I was actually surprised that the score was so sparse throughout the film. Uh, Cause I, you know, when he was talking about the Morricone vibe, I expected to hear a little bit more of that throughout the film. Um, I thought what was there was was all good. I agree that the the highlight is definitely the title track. Um, I don't know why the scoring was was so minimal. Maybe he just wanted to focus more on the images than anything. Um, I couldn't really say, but uh, yeah, there, there was an opportunity I think to bring a little bit more in there in some scenes, just to punch up some of the action. And speaking of punching up the action, eventually there is a shootout because, of course, you can't have a vamp- vampire bar, you know, without some silver bullet shootout. So mm-hmm. everybody's, you know, shooting their shooting their guns. And you know what else, too, was interesting choice? Again, we're living in a world with no rules that are that 
We're living in a world of rules that are only Danzig's rules and only Danzig understands them. And one of those rules is that his vampires drink rot gut whiskey when they're not drinking blood. Which I was like, is this bloody whiskey? Is this like why? Like how are they drinking? Why are they drinking whiskey? But you know what? Glenn Danzig's vampires drink rot gut whiskey, and that's just the way it is. You know, yes, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, they have a shootout. Uh, Death Rider eventually, you know, the Count he doesn't trust death rider and eli roth doesn't trust him and bad bathory doesn't trust him and they go to the count they're like we don't trust this guy like we should do you know we gotta do something with him and then on the flip side of that mina mina has an affair with with death rider and kim director's super pissed about it so they burn her at the stake kind of you know they, mm. they burn her to a crisp and you said that was green screen and whatnot and yeah composited and 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 such um and then here's now now here's what where i was really confused i was trying to figure out so what why was why was death rider getting his revenge on this house of vampires because they they had his sister who's played by kansas bowling for those who don't know she's like a up-and-coming actress she's in um quentin tarantino's film uh uh once upon a time in hollywood she directed a movie for trauma called the bc butcher when she was 17 and she's just like the you know she's on the rise but why why anthony why was he so pissed that his sister was there i really don't know how to answer that question <laughs> <laughs> i think maybe they turned his sister or they were they were using her for something uh I don't really know. I, I can't expand upon that too much. <laughs> Wait, so they turned. So that means that. So she was a human at one point. She got turned, but Death Rider was always a vampire. Like this is where I was trying to. This is where I got really confused. Maybe I need to watch the movie again when it comes out. I I, I could not figure this out. You know. Uh, um, yeah, I. I don't know, and I don't know if it was made clear in the film exactly. Um, I assumed that the maybe Count had her there for, uh, I don't know if she was one of the, the prostitutes working there or um, maybe. Well, they were she... all there. There were girls lined in coffins or they were like right. cult girls. I, yeah, I just I was trying to figure it out. And basically, I don't know. It could have just been that it looked really cool on camera. Uh, you know, uh, I'm not sure. This is true. This is true. And ultimately, ultimately, um, uh, uh, Death Rider, he, he, he brings her mercy. He, he frees her from this vampire existence, which doesn't seem like such a bad existence of being a vampire. Like, it's not like these vampires, you know, they try to stay out of the sun. But for the most part, they seem to have like, you know, they just kind of do their thing. So is it like, wh why is it so OK for him to be a vampire but not her to be a vampire? You know, I don't know. It, it just I, I, that that part was that was um, I was trying to figure that out. Um, and then uh, Julian Sands talks for a really long time, yes. really long time about how about how he's going to really give it to Death Rider. And then Death Rider gets him and he catches fire. 
and Death Rider leaves. He's followed out by Bad Bathory and Kim Director's character, and they look out over the the horizon. And now Death Rider, he's taken the girl, the virgin sacrifice that he came with, but now she's a vampire. And they ride off together into the night. And supposedly there's going to be a sequel. I hope so. I want to see more. I want to see whatever Glenn wants to do. What would you? What kind of material would you like to see Glenn Danzig tackle next? Well, I know that I think there's been some talk of a sequel, but Glenn was saying that he wants to do like a kung fu movie. So, because um, he's big into kung fu, so. You know, if he, I guess if he gets an opportunity, maybe he might do something with Kung Fu. Maybe he might do another horror movie. Uh, you know, I'm happy to watch whatever he wants to do. I wouldn't mind seeing him doing something other than horror just to see where else he wants to branch off into. I mean, we got horror with Veronica, and then we got like a horror western with this. So, uh, you know, like a be a Kung Fu horror movie or something could be cool. I feel like no matter what, there's going to be horror involved if it's Glenn Danzig. Like, you can't, like, there's no way around it. Like, there's going to be some sort of horrific element. I Like, I think it's up to us to theorize now what that element might be. What would you, what, 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 what element would you fuse? Maybe, maybe um, werewolves, like uh, werewolf kung fu movie would be interesting. Problem is most werewolf movies suck, and unless you've got like a really good werewolf suit or a really good budget to make a great looking werewolf, it's just going to be a shitty movie. Uh, I think most werewolf movies are more of them are bad than good. What is your favorite werewolf movie? I feel like I need to say American Werewolf in London. Uh, just because it's one of the best-looking werewolves, I think, even though it, it moves kind of wonky, it looks great. Uh, you know, uh, I like The Howling. Uh, I'm a big fan of Bad Moon, underrated movie. Oh, Bad yeah. Moon is fun. Really, Bad, really fun. Uh, yeah, not great, but fun. Um, but, you know, there, there haven't been a lot of great ones out there, so um, uh, I wouldn't mind seeing him do maybe something like... Uh, I don't know. Something like Angels and Demons seems more up his alley, I would think. Uh, but I don't really know. Uh, I feel like he could go in a lot of different directions, honestly. I like what Robbie says here. Robbie Bloodshed says, a violent crime movie would be cool for Glenn to tackle. Some Maybe, maybe going back to his Jersey Italian roots and tackling something mob-related or just, you know, violent crime. Oh, Chris puts a good point, too. Something noir you know, some sort of like neo noir film might be interesting. Um, might might work out really well as well. Yeah. He knows how to set mood. So, yeah. Yeah. Something like that, I think, is in his wheelhouse. I have to say, my favorite werewolf film, hands down, it doesn't get talked about enough. My favorite werewolf film, Motherfucking Dog Soldiers, is. One of the, look, Chris and I said at the same time, Dog Soldiers. Dog Soldiers is such a fun werewolf movie because it just fuses, I mean, it's it's part action, 
you know, uh, he really is. Neil Marshall is almost like a, he's almost like a, a horror version of James Cameron in a weird kind of way. And it's basically Night of the Living Dead with werewolves and soldiers. And the werewolves look phenomenal. You never see, you never see them for very long. They're very rarely seen in quick, lots of quick jump cutting, action editing. Um, they're, these are nasty werewolves that eat, eat, eat their victims. And mm-hmm. I just, man, I wish they would make a sequel. Were they talking about making a sequel? I can't remember. Yeah, yeah, they are, but mm-hmm. it's just been forever. Yeah, might have been too long. That's a great film, though. Really, really, really fun. Yeah. Truly. Talk about werewolves needing to look good because. I mean, they put them, the, these actors, they're on stilts. Like, they really, they feel very, there's a real organic sense to these werewolves. Yes. You know, even though we don't know what a, you know, there's no such thing as werewolf anatomy, but this feels like lycanthropy anatomy a little bit, I would say. Yeah. I would agree. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think that, that might work. But yeah, a violent crime thriller for Glenn Danzig. A, a crime, a violent crime noir would be very, very interesting. And they get to do all the gore without being firmly rooted in horror. And, you know, who knows? Who knows? Maybe get, maybe get Glenn and uh, uh, Jerry and Doyle in there <laughs> playing some enforcers. <laughs> Just sort of in the background. That would be interesting, too. Um. Yeah, I don't know. I think it'd be really, really great. What? So, what was the what was the vibe on set generally? Like, was it just was there? Was it really like run and gun? Was it loose? Was it really tight because you only had twenty three days? Um, it was a little tense. Um, I wouldn't say it was a run and gun because we shot almost all of it in one area. Um, the, most of it was shot at uh, Heritage Square Park, uh, which is uh, in the LA area, like uh, uh, kind of just you know not too far outside of the downtown area. But there's this this whole little block that's just all historical homes and. And they they're very old, and so those interiors all matched what Glenn was looking for. Ah. So, like you know, a lot of sanctuary was in this old church that was on the property. Um, so you know, it was I guess a little bit tense on set only because you know Glenn very much ran the show, uh, and you know he's still um, I guess figuring out a lot of aspects of production. So gotcha. Um, you know, it, it was just uh, a bit of a, a – well, again, it kind of goes back to if he could do it all himself, he would. Right. So, right. Um, you know, having to have all these different departments working together but all needing to be on his exact page, um, you know, it took a minute for all, all of us to kind of see what his vision was and get there with him. Uh, so, you know, some days were a lot more chill than others, but – that's the same on any production ever. Right. So, um, you know, 
this was just a little atypical um, in some of the ways that he wanted to run the set, but uh, at least for me, I need to be super malleable in my position to at least you know be able to work with different directors uh, and their styles. So um, that was just how I approached it, um, you know. And so, but also being a fan uh, and and knowing a bit about Glenn before I came into the project, I kind of knew what to expect just in terms of his demeanor and, and attitude and the way that he would probably want things done. So, um, so I think that gave me a, a slightly different perspective on things than most of the crew who were just, you know, non-union people in LA who don't give a fuck who anybody is on set. Right. Right. Um, what was it like? By the way, I really I do I do agree with Von Doom said here. He said I always thought Glenn should do an animated film of Paradise Lost with the Black Aria as the score. That's actually a really interesting idea. I I could totally see him doing something like that uh, in the in the wor world of animation. Um, what so you know, but you know Glenn Danzig like, or at least in the sense that you worked for Glenn Danzig. So what's so what was that like? I mean, that must have been awesome being a fan. Because we talked about how you started, and you you you're a fan first, and then you well you got on the show, and then you're you find out it's Glenn Danzig, and you're like, holy shit, I'm a big Danzig fan. So, do you like? How do you n navigate that? Do you let him know that you're a little bit of a fan, or do you just are you you play it completely cool, like straight dry, like just like oh yeah, hey Glenn, what's up? Here's some coffee. What's up? Just doing a thing. Oh, we're gonna do that now. Yeah, cool. Like that's kind uh, of more or less how I, 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 I that's how I play it on set with most people anyway. Like, uh, right. it's different. You know, if I were at a concert and I went, uh, you know, to the buses afterward to meet Glenn, you know, I'm going there as a fan and it's, it's a different experience. I'm on set with Glenn. We're all, you know, at the end of the day, everybody on set is just another employee. Um, right. So, uh, in, in that sense, um, it was, you know, it was surreal to be working alongside of him, but I knew that I was working alongside of him for a reason because I had a job that he needed me to do on set. Right. Um, so, you know, I, I think I'd let him know at one point that I was a big fan of his work um, just because uh, I think Glenn appreciates that, you know, um, <clears throat> and nobody else on set really, I don't think, was a fan of his at all. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah, a couple a couple of people were, um, and definitely he was working with some people that were friends of his. Um, but you know, again, you know, you're just pulling together this crew from around the LA area, and it, a lot of these people are you know younger kids that may not necessarily be into. They may not even know who Danzig is. Um, so uh, yeah, I, I had a bit of a different experience as a as a fan on this, but. Uh, you know, each day was uh, a, a challenge in figuring out, you know, whether it was scheduling of, of uh, days or scenes or actors, whatever it is. So, you know, I'm just working alongside of him every day, trying to figure out what's going to be the best course for his movie. Uh, but I, I think he appreciated the fact that I was a fan. I mean, I, I think he's definitely, it, 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 it's funny because he seems like he wouldn't be uh, a guy who's so approachable and, and, um, you know, uh, receptive to, to fans maybe necessarily, but uh, I was just at the Death Rider premiere a couple of weeks ago and he stayed down in front for every single person who wanted to get something signed before he left. So 
he definitely uh, appreciates the fans, and I think that helped me out a bit on set. Um, you this I I mean time and time again, you you hear just about how he really does show up for his fans in in this facet, very solicitous to his fans. Um, how does that come out though? Is it like do you just matter of factly you're like, oh yeah, Glenn, like you know, I'm I'm not doing an impression of you. I'm just like. Yeah. I'm, I'm matter of factly just be like, hey, Glenn, yeah, like I'm I'm a fan of yours. Or is it like you're talking by the friggin', you know, uh, hostess cakes at Crafty, and you're just like, you know, yeah, and then you just ca- something casually comes up, and then you reference something that he would allow him to pick up and know that you know his shit or. Um, I think I just kind of mentioned it casually one day, um, after, you know, we'd probably been figuring out some shit on set or something. And, and, uh, you know, he, I was appreciative of the fact that I was doing my job correctly. And then I just kind of offhandedly told him that I was a fan, just more to let him, you know, know that I was a fan of his work and I, I understood what he was doing and I'm, I'm, I, I'm on his wavelength. Um, he doesn't think I'm just another asshole on set that doesn't know what he's doing and, and maybe doesn't right. see what what his uh, vision is necessarily. Um, so do horror films, because again, we talked about how, we talked about having taste and ability and bridging the two. And like, you know, I know that some film directors like use their taste as almost a vocabulary a reference point. Oh, I want to do something like this from this movie, like this, uh, you know, that kind of thing. Did horror, did, were horror films discussed a lot? Excuse me. It's a seltzer. Were <clears throat> horror films discussed a lot on the set in, in that kind of way or just in general, or I don't know. Was it, was it, uh, was there a lot of horror talk? Uh, some, yeah, you know, we definitely discussed like some of the hammer horror and, and spaghetti western influences a bit, but um, honestly, I spent so much, of the, so many of these days, like really, uh, I worked more on this show than most of my other shows. Um, so I wasn't always on set because as a second AD, my job is, is right actually a lot of the time it's offset. So, call sheets. Uh, call sheets and getting actors ready and making sure that everything's ready for the next day. And, you know, I'm on, when I have all that stuff settled down, then I'm on set, uh, you know, watching what's happening and supporting the first AD and, and, uh, doing all of that. But, um, you know, I, I kept myself so busy that I didn't have a whole lot of conversation with him about horror movies necessarily. Um, that must be very interesting too. When you're bringing people to set, when you're bringing talent, talent, actors, whatever, to set and like does small talk evolve out of that or is it a very quiet clinical process of hello knock 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 mr so-and-so or mrs so-and-so it's time it's your call time or it's time for you to come to set um or is it more um it just it depends on the actors honestly uh you know some of them are more quiet when they're walking to set than others uh i generally tend to be more quiet and just you know i don't want to say professional because it's not like you can't talk to these people but it's just i'm usually just very cut and dry when i'm on set it's usually just kind of business that i'm focused on just good way to be. getting the day done um 
that being said, you know, lots of small talk with like Eli and Julian Sands and Devin and, uh, you know, everybody was super cool. So uh, after all this time and when you're when you're going through the, you know, if you're working on these productions, you're kind of going through the ringer with all these people. So it's, it's a shared experience of, you know, uh, joy and trauma. So you tend to bond with all these people to a degree that, you know, you, you've you've got this uh thing together that you're all just sort of getting through you know it's like i said they're long days uh right. so it's there's a lot that goes into it uh but yeah, everybody Sawa's, yeah. oh no i'm sorry i cut you off go ahead go ahead i'm saying everybody was in in pretty good spirits for the most part though uh when i was dealing with them uh devin Sawa, man he's got he's done a lot of great films a lot of great genre work um yeah truly. and He's been doing a lot of really good stuff lately. Um, yes. Interesting movies. Hunter, uh, Hunter. I didn't see Hunter, Hunter yet, but I saw him in uh, The Fanatic, which I thought was, I really enjoyed The Fanatic. Everybody hates The Fanatic. I, thought, I love The Fanatic. <laughs> yeah. If you've ever gone to a convention, you've met John Travolta's character a hundred times. So, um, Okay. And it's directed by Fred Durst, okay? That's number one. Yeah, you know, other than the, the one unironic use of Limp Biscuit in a scene, uh, you wouldn't really know that it was directed by Fred Durst, I don't think. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. You're, you, you, are, you are correct about that. That's not like it, it didn't scream Fred Durst except for, for uh, uh, what you're referring to. And, you right. Know. Uh, although I did hear that John Travolta... Uh, recut that film himself so that might also have something to do with it what i did not know that yeah i, I heard wow. that john so. travolta is, is a really interesting actor in the same way you know he is cut from a similar cloth uh as nicholas cage um they are they are very similar in that they can get very into these very weird characters and weird accents and weird mannerisms and things well you mean what you're supposed to do when you're an actor anyway but um, right yeah he he commits to this role in fanatic uh in a, yeah. in a way that really surprised me and you feel guys spoilers if you haven't seen this movie i don't give a shit spoilers if you haven't seen this movie i, I mean, the ending is so like it's like it's cruel like you feel not cruel maybe that's not the right word you feel you feel sorrow for I felt sorrow for his character a little bit that he like he pushed it so far and then like he got his eye poked out. <laughs> so fucked up. <laughs> yeah. And I did I did feel bad for him uh at the end. That that whole sequence in the house is just pure insanity. Uh people really, really truly insane. People really do need to watch this movie and, and ignore the the low 1.5 score on Letterboxd it currently enjoys. It has 1.5 on Letterboxd? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Awful. Wow. You know, it's hard, man. Uh, you know, I do, you know, for a while I was like, I'm not going to score. I'm just going to say that I saw the film. I'm not going to leave scores. And then I was like, that's kind of a cop out too. But it's hard sometimes to come up with a score for certain, certain times I'm watching stuff. I'm kind of like, you know, there are some films that, I give five stars, like a great example, like Predator, I gave five stars. Is a Predator a five-star film? It's not, but to, for, but for me it is, I it's guess. It's absolutely a five-star. Right? Like, absolutely. it's a weird, 
it's a weird dichotomy where you're kind of rating things like where there are some films that are like both critically acclaimed and box office, you know, like Jaws, like Jaws is a masterpiece, like a perfect, flawless right. masterpiece. It's always going to be five stars, but you wouldn't put Predator in the same arena as Jaws. And yet here I am giving both five stars because it means something to me and I really enjoy this film. Therefore, it's five stars to me. Yeah, and that's that's how I tend to rate films. Really, is it's it's mostly my enjoyment level of the film, and then also how is it as an actual film. But you know, if it's five star entertainment, then it's going to get a five star rating. It's you know, because if you if you give Predator and Jaws both five stars, it's not. You're right. It's not putting them both in the same league, and you can't compare Predator to Jaws. But they're both five star films in their respective categories. I think there is a film like you you have Shutter. Yeah. There's a film. I don't know if it's still on Shutter. I watched it, um, I want to say, in the spring. I think it's called Game of Death. And it's like a board game. takes a sample of blood from everybody. If you don't kill someone within a certain amount of time, then your head explodes. And very okay. standard sort of, like, that's just the setup. But very sort of um, standard like type of like we've seen that movie a hundred times or a variation of that film sure. this one not only is this one really 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 well done the pacing is excellent it comes in at like 74 minutes long and wow. yeah i just i like really short films like short features i think there's i really admire them and their ability to when they're really well done to be so oh it's just a, it's really really nice when they when they just when when you nail it and it's seventy four minutes have passed and the movie's over, I think that's really cool. Right. Yeah, I, I know exactly what you mean. Um, uh, is that a new movie? I think it came out in twenty. Yeah, like twenty eighteen, twenty. I'll 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 send you I'll send you the IMDb for it. You should definitely watch it. I think you know actually there's a great search engine. If you want to stream stuff legally, legally, not illegally, legally, uh, it searches all the all the streaming platforms like Hulu and Shutter and whatever Netflix and shows you where things are streaming. It's called JustWatch.com. I use it all the time. It's a great way to find out if a movie is streaming legally. Um, and, on a and also Letterboxd. Letterboxd too. Letterboxd is another great. I, I so much stuff. That I find on Letterbox. Let me ask you this: Do you, are you ever in a situation where you you're so set on a rating, but then you see someone else that you respect and follow on Letterbox, and they have a way different rating than you, and it makes you question your judgment and affect how you perceive the film? Maybe occasionally it has a little bit of an influence. I think it would be impossible not to, but um, I, I actually, I only follow people I know on Letterboxd. Uh, only, okay. only because uh, I, I started following other people that I didn't know and they were, the, too many people like everything on that site. And then my whole feed is just, somebody liked 50 reviews. I can't see anything that my friends are posting. So that's Your why I just gets messed up. 
Yeah, exactly. So I, I, if they had a feature to shut that stuff off, I'd probably follow more people because I, I am interested in reading more opinions. But, uh, you know, I'll generally look at my couple friends that I follow, um, but I don't let it influence me too much because sometimes I'll think about the awful ratings that they give good movies. Mm. And then um, I realize that it's it's none of this matters. It's all subjective. So I just base things purely on my enjoyment, uh, really, you know, if it makes me feel something or not. So I think I'm I'm pretty fair with my ratings, I guess. I try to be I try to be as even even keeled as possible. It's you know, it's hard. I generally if even if a movie is really bad, I will try and only comment on the things that I liked about it. Or you know, like I'll only talk about or I will critically break down what what it was that might have not worked for me but yes would never say something sucked or was bad or wouldn't recommend something if you don't have anything nice to say then just don't say anything at all right uh i, I mean honestly i still say things even if they're not nice but i try to put it in the <laughs> i try to put it in a constructive way that yeah you know, constructive I'm, constructive I, i'm telling you why it wasn't good and it, you know i like to at right. least up something for where I think it could have been improved. Um, but, you know, I think it's it's important to also take the good with the bad. You know, it's it can't all be nice comments, I think. Now, here's what's interesting, though. Then there's here's another interesting thing about Letterbox is then you have like the heart function. So I'm giving this only three stars, but I'm giving it a heart because I love it so much, even though it's only a three star movie. Right. Which makes it different from a five star movie somehow which I might also still give a heart, but it's like the heart is almost like, look, this is not, this does not deserve five stars, but I love it. Or like, this doesn't deserve four stars or three and a half stars, but I love it. And so I'm going to call it a favorite. And I don't know, like you could have a one star movie that might have a heart, you know? Sure. I don't know if I have any of those, but (laughs) yeah, the acknowledgement that this is not a great film, but there's some merit to it to you for some reason right but then like what about a movie like the room which is by many considered to be a masterpiece and at the same time uh you know uh uh criticized for shortcomings is the room does that make the room a five-star movie or does that make the room a one-star movie like because like is never watched the room oh really I think it looks awful. I don't think it, anybody who, I don't think you can say it's a masterpiece uh, uh, unironically. So um, this is like people who laud Troll 2 so much. A movie that's terrible is not good because it's so terrible. Hmm. You can uh, appreciate the fact that it's awful, but it, it doesn't it doesn't turn around to being good suddenly. It's a horribly made film is a horribly made film. You know, I actually really kind of agree with that. You know, like I do. Like it's it's like, yeah, like you have to acknowledge the film's greatness for the right reasons. You can't just acknowledge. You can't just call it great because it's so bad that it's good. That doesn't make it a good movie. But you can still acknowledge that it's it's got humor or that there is humor in this film it's a even though it's unintentional sure that makes it great yeah. i mean there are, you have to remember 
what, like 850 movies come out a year or something. And so many of them are just forgettable crap that nobody's even going to watch. So if something really bad gets some notoriety, you can say that it's a one-star movie and it's probably a terrible film, but maybe it's worth watching because it's so bad that it, it provides entertainment on another level. But you can't say that it's a masterpiece for that reason. I don't, I don't think that really holds weight. Battlefield Earth. Never watched it. I will say this about Nicholas. Nicholas Cage is one of my favorite actors of all time. I, I truly believe that there's no such thing as a bad Nicholas Cage performance. I only think there are bad directions of Nicholas Cage. Like you have to know how to direct Nicholas Cage in order to get what you want out of Nicholas Cage in so much that he is like tofu and he's going to taste like whatever you season him with. But so, I agree. yeah, so I'll watch anything with Nicholas Cage in it. Because I, I again, I, I don't think there's any, there's no such thing as a bad cage performance. It's just about like what kind of cage you are going to get. And I'm not even talking about like rage cage. I'm talking about like. That's the least interesting cage, honestly. I mean, that's the most cliche cage. And that was like really in, that was really popular in 2017 when Mandy came out. But there are so many other far more interesting cages because he's really trying to do so much in acting like a great cage is i don't know have you seen bad lieutenant port authority in new orleans uh, yeah great film great film and he is what he's doing in that film like like the, like halfway through the film he just decides he's going to talk like humphrey bogart and and it's so it i don't know why it's so brilliant dude it just adds so much to the performance and he has these moments of of true mania and again not rage cage moments like just these moments where he he works himself into a frenzy and everything that he's putting on the screen it's so authentic like it's so genuine and yeah. makes it great you know have you seen pig have not seen pig yet i cannot wait to see pig phenomenal you dug it phenomenal. yeah yeah. Yeah. Some of the best work he's done in years. So I'm not sure what my number is on Letterbox. Actually, I could tell you. Uh, I'm on a quest to see every single Nicolas Cage film ever made. Even oh. even the one, all the direct-to-video ones. I watch every single Cage performance. I've seen a lot of them. Uh, and I think he's made 100. Here, let's check right now. I'll tell you how many movies he's made. I'm going to find out. Nicholas Cage has made as of now, and he puts out like eight, eight or nine movies a year. Oh yeah, maxing them. Well, what? Yeah. That's way lower number than I thought. It says right here. It says right here that there is. Wait, why is it not giving me my percentage? Oh, it's because I'm not logged in. Of course, let's log in real quick. If you're not on Letterbox, you should really check it out. That is how I met Anthony. Uh, if you did not watch the first episode of this, I wrote him a comment and he gave me his email. And now we've yeah had a had a long conversation. Okay, so he's only made 115 movies according to Letterbox. I've seen 47 percent of them. I've seen 55 out of 115 Nicolas Cage films, and. Thank you. I'm in no rush, though. Like, I'm in no rush. I'm going to... I'm taking my sweet time. I watched them all. I watched Weatherman. I watched Family Man. 
I watched Matchstick Men. I watched Trapped in Paradise. Great film. Freaking It Could Happen to You. Um, Peggy Sue Got Married. Valley Girl. The, the list goes on and on and on. Do you know that Nicolas Cage has only starred in two sequels? Three sequels? Out of 115 films. Pretty, pretty impressive. Yeah, that's a really good ratio, actually. I mean, the amount of original performances that he puts out into the world every year, I mean, he should be heralded for the genius that he is, truly, in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he's an Academy Award winner. You can't take that away from him. That's true. So. Guess that and means something. he's a Coppola, and he doesn't even bank on that name. Like, you think that this dude... Doesn't go doesn't go into Hollywood being like, hey, my uncle directed The Godfather. No, instead he takes the name of his favorite comic book character, sets out on his own. Not a not a not a handsome guy by Hollywood standards at all. Kind of goofy looking, little doofy looking, and just completely carves out um, uh, uh, a niche for himself. Becomes this big action star in the '90s, you know rivaling Schwarzenegger and all the and all these muscle heads and he's just like a guy. Yeah. You know? Well he did he did use the Coppola name briefly in the beginning. Did he? Yeah, he's he's credited as Nicholas Coppola in Fast Times. Okay. But I mean he's got he, like a bit part. He didn't yeah, he didn't rise based on that name. No he did not. People don't know the name Nicholas Coppola. They know Nicholas Cage. And yes. I bet you if you were to take a poll on the street, streets of America, Middletown America, and you ask them, hey, who's Nicholas Coppola? They'd be like, I don't know. Who's Nicholas Cage? Oh, yeah, that's a face-off guy, you know? Yeah, totally. So Nobody know that, yeah. Respect. Respect to you, Nicholas Cage. Loved Superman so much that he named his son Kal-El. It's crazy. Bold. Yeah. Bold. I had a friend that was just doing a... Uh, Western with him up in Montana recently. Oh, I bet that was aw- what. What did he say about it? Did he say it was awesome? He said it was awesome. He said he was very cool. Uh, he got to do some off-camera dialogue with him while they were oh. filming. So, uh, big moment for him. He was very elated. He got to be in a scene off-camera with Nicolas Cage. Well, he was he was ading it, so he was just right. reading, reading, yeah, reading some off-camera dialogue for him. But yeah. he was in the scene, even though he wasn't in the scene. Yeah. Yes, I mean, <laughs> like, does it get much cooler than that? No, I no. guess it can get a lot cooler than that, but still. Yeah, I, I'm hoping to wind up on one of his sets uh, at some point. You know. Um, it sounds like you're a very talented uh, second AD, and the fact that Nicolas Cage does so many fucking movies a year, I would say your percentages, and you're in L.A., I would say your percentages are pretty darn great that that will happen. I really want that to happen for you. So do I, yeah. Truly. So, <laughs> we'll put it out there. We'll see what happens. Yeah, you've put it out into the universe. If it happens, you gotta you got to send me an email. Be like, Jeff. It's happening. I'm I'm on a Nicolas Cage film. Yeah, prisoners of go- uh, prisoners in a ghost land. That's the new one. Can't wait oh, for that. Okay. Heard some good stuff about that one. There is one. Oh my god, what's it called? I think it's called Alien Fighter. He he's like a 
Kung Fu Master fighting an alien from another dimension came out like two years ago. Pretty, pretty gnarly stuff. Pretty great. Actually, it wasn't that great, except for Nicolas Cage. Nicolas Cage was... And it'd be the same thing. If Glenn Danzig was doing what Nicolas Cage, like, just like, you know, appeared as a bit player in these films, I'd watch the film just to watch that performance. And I really think, I really think that Glenn Danzig would really, really, really also just sort of make a career for himself as a, you know, uh, character actor. Not that, that that's what he wants to do, but, you know. Sure. It'd be nice if he did, though. I, I remember racing down to Warehouse to rent a copy of Prophecy 2 because he was in it. So, <laughs> you know. Yeah, it was it, it was definitely it was really, really, really interesting to see that. I wish it wasn't so quick. It's so quick. It really is. get to see his face. Yeah, he's hardly in the movie, but it was at the time a very big deal. So, oh, yeah. He, yeah. I mean, he did. He did. Uh, he did. He also did some anime stuff. He did Satanica. A Satanica cartoon, I think. Grub Girl did a Grub right. Girl comic thing. Um, so you know, it's pretty much fucking Glenn Danzig. You know, let's see if we have any comments before we we wind things down here. Anything interesting? Yes, we talked about that. We were talking about werewolves. We were talking about this and that. Um, are you? As are you making your own stuff at all? Like, do you do you uh, do you write and direct? Do you like make shorts or you know you got like a feature stashed away somewhere that you're trying to put together? Or you're just reveling in the life of. Yeah, no, I'm AD? just. Yeah, I'm just. I, I enjoy just working in the industry. You know, it's uh, I second AD. I, I work in the production side too, coordinating. So, uh, I just I honestly keep busy enough with that that um i'm usually not working on my own stuff too much uh maybe at some point but uh that keeps me busy enough right now um is there uh do you is there a destination that you have in mind like do you want to get are you trying to is there or is there like um is there a position somewhere as you said like within the cog of the machine or a cog is there a certain cog in the machine that you see in your in the future that that you'd like to have your name on but don't quite yet um you know i I, i've definitely got vague ambitions in the industry but i kind of fell into this industry um as a fluke uh you know i just kind of got doing it um, cause I didn't really see a career in the film industry freelancing as something that made sense because I, I was used to working and I had a normal office job for years and I was just used to structure and a steady paycheck and all of that. And I didn't really understand how my friends who freelanced worked and made money regularly. So, uh, once I got into doing this, um, I've just kind of been going with the flow really. And, and I've enjoyed where it's taken me so far. So. Uh, you know, we'll see where the ultimate destination could wind up being. Right now, I'm just kind of enjoying swimming around in the, the non-union waters and, and second-aiding fun projects and working on random stuff that, that people call me up for. And if I get tired of that, then I'll probably look into something more specific. But I'm just kind of enjoying the ride right now. Um, let's close this out with something that uh, I've asked 
my guests on occasion. Um, I'm going to ask you your top 10. Sorry, not top 10, top five. So crazy top 10. It's like a whole episode. I want your top five misfits, Sam Hain, and Danzig songs. Oof. Okay. Now, <clears throat> let me let me preface that. Let me preface that real quick by saying it doesn't have to be of all time. It could just be whatever is, you know, whatever you're into at the moment. You know, like it doesn't have to be uh, a, a be-all, end-all sort of situation. That's up to you. Right. And although I think I've been listening to all of this material for so long that uh, they probably are my all-time favorites, I guess, at this point. Um, these Misfits, I feel like you always got to have skulls in there. Uh, I Turned Into Martians always been one of my top tracks. Uh, I really like Some Kind of Hate. Great song. Uh, great song. Jeez. Static Age came to mind. Uh, Hollywood Babylon. Ooh. That's, this, these are just, this is what just poured into my head. Honestly, I love every Misfits track and I love all the, you know, like I, I like all the different mixes. Like I'm a big fan of the the Devil's Whorehouse mix on the Misfits Two compilation. So, have you ever listened to the Plan Nine version of Devil's Whorehouse? Yeah, I've I've got the whole Misfits box ripped on my phone, so I constantly will go through all the different versions of those songs and listen to them from from all the different sessions. That they're uh, so great. They're all unique and wonderful. I I agree. Yeah, they are. You know, it's even like uh, when Glenn did his own little solo single with uh, Who Killed Marilyn and uh, Spook City USA. You know, it's just hearing those different mixes. I mean, Glenn, again, that's Glenn doing everything himself. Um, geez, Sam Hain, it's really hard because they don't have that much material, but, jeez, uh, I mean, you could just pick almost any five off November Coming Fire because that's always been my favorite album by them for ever, really. I love the first album. Uh, I, I like all that material, really, but um, November Coming Fire, it's, it's, it, any five songs off that would be my favorite five. Um, as far as Danzig goes, uh, I feel like i got to go Twist the Cane. Okay. For one, I mean, that's just, that's that's the track right there that kicks it off. Um, I've always been a big fan of Sustinus. Oh, love that song. I think it's some of Glenn's best singing. Agreed. Um, Until You Call in the Dark, great track. Big fan, big fan of Dancing Four. I feel like that's kind of underrated among those four albums. It really is. Uh, Long way back from hell. Great track, and uh, geez, let's end it with uh, something a little aggressive. Uh, a big fan of it's coming down on Thrall. All right, <laughs> yeah, those are, I'm happy with those picks. That is, th- those are 
those are all solid picks. I mean, anything from, yeah, November coming fire. Can't You really, really, really cannot go wrong with this album. It's stupendous in every single sense of the word. Um, I want to thank Anthony so much for taking his time. Two nights in a row. <laughs> double header. We, we, we delve deep into Death Rider, as deep as you can go. And just talked about movies and Nicolas Cage, and it was really, really fun. Uh, I want to give a quick shout-out to Pete Roloff. I hope I didn't butcher your name, who sent a tip last week on a Wednesday, and it didn't get highlighted for some reason. And so I just wanted to give him a quick shout-out, a tip of my hat, and a thank you for his support. Uh, I also like to thank the Patreon members. I'm going to do that real quick. We have Jason Horton, Dagger Love, Nullified Voices, William Rodriguez, Alan Salata, Bel- Below Is You, Appetite, Nikki, Crazy White Boy, Mike, Adam Harmless, Ratty, John Voice of Doom, Rue Morgue, Honolulu Babylon. And, of course, Kevin Von Spirit, okay, Kevin 45. Kevin's out in L.A. right now. He's working on a documentary for Haunted, uh, Haunted Garage. Uh, can't wait to see what he is cooking up. So happy for him and his crew, and I hope it is a great success. And a quick shout-out again to Von Doom. He's on here somewhere. He has a YouTube membership. Uh, please make sure to check all this stuff out, the Patreon, all that stuff. The link's, in the, links down below. Um, and... Yeah, I think that's it. We have a nice way of closing, we say, on the show. Peace and hair grease, that's what we're going to do. We got the peace and the hair grease, and then we... Make it for bonus! Make it for bonus! Make it for bonus! Make it for bonus! Make it for bonus!